Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Welcome to The Crunch on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Cam Slater, and this is the place where we crunch the political issues and cut through the politician's spin. This week, I'll be talking to a former MP, and he's now working for the dark side as a lobbyist. And then I'll chat with a former mayor about what's going on in Auckland Council. My first guest this afternoon is Fletcher Tabito, a former teacher, New Zealand First MP. And as I said before, he's turned to the dark side of lobbying. We'll explore what it is that lobbyists do, how they achieve success for their clients. And then I'll be talking with former North Shore mayor and current local board member, George Wood about Auckland Council and what is annoying him as the council drafts its 10-year budget. We'll dip into the mailbag, of course. I love this part of the show. And we'll close out the show with Cam's buddies and see what they have to say about the shenanigans this week from Te Pāti Māori. We also have a bonus for you. We'll announce the winners of author Alex Epstein's book, Fossil Future. And don't forget to send comments to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. So on Tuesday, Te Pāti Māori organised a protest. They hurled insults at King Charles and then swore an oath to a half-wrecked piece of paper that the crown they so despise was also a party to, and then they eventually caved in and swore a proper oath. 
What does it all mean? Well, not much, really. It was all for show, from the wearing of silly hats to Harker to signing fake oaths. Three of its MPs, though, appeared to insult King Charles during the official ceremony as well. And when Te Party Māori MPs were called to pledge allegiance to the king, they stood to first pledge allegiance to the Treaty of Waitangi, Mokopuna, and Tikanga Māori, before they then approached the clerk of the house to make the legally required affirmation. But it was all for show. They had to make the legally required oath, otherwise they couldn't be MPs, and so it was all for show, their grandstanding. The alternative ceremony happened in the House while all 123 MPs were sworn in. The Maori Party alternative process even involved signing a document on the desk of co-leader Rawari Waititi. They basically hijacked a solemn ceremony important in our democracy for pathetic grandstanding. But three to party Maori MPs, co-leaders Debbie Nauru Rapaka, Rawari Waititi, and Titai Tonga MP Takuta Ferris didn't stick to the script. Instead of pledging allegiance to King Charles III or in Tario Kingi Tiari Te Tuatoro, the two MPs referred to Kingi Harihari Te Tuatoro. And in Tario Maori, Harihari can be an insult which refers to a rash. And the way they used the phrase, it could be translated as an insult, meaning the rash king or the objectionable king. And it appeared that the clerk of the house, David Wilson, failed to pick up on these amended oaths. And it's also unclear if the oaths from Ferris and Waititi will be accepted or if they'll be asked to redo the process. In my view, they should be made to redo the oath. They've insulted the king and failed to undertake the oath correctly. But naturally, these clowns reckon there's no insult at all. Ferris told Stuff that Hurry was East Coast for Charles, emphatic for Charles, he said, whatever that means. But Stuff journalist Glenn McConnell reckons Ferris is telling porkies. He's from the same area, and he says that Hurry has a very different meaning. It means scab. So all in all, it was rude, insulting, disrespectful, and all on just 3.08% of the vote. Debbie Nariwapaka was even on breakfast television claiming a mandate for all Maori, even though Te Pāti Maori got just 3.08% of the vote. At the same time, she was deriding ACT and New Zealand First for having no mandate for their policies, despite both parties getting more than double what her party got and having joined with National to form a majority of the parliament. But that's her logic for you. 3.08% of the vote equals a mandate for all Maori who make up 17% of the population. To party Maori are a disgrace, and their grandstanding protests, alternate swearing ceremonies, all amount to nothing. It reminds me of the famous lines from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools, the way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player, that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing.
that sums up to party Maori beautifully, far more accurately than anything their culture has produced, that is for sure. Their little protest is done, but they had to make the oath to the king anyway, otherwise they couldn't be trotters deep in the trough without it. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the App Stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything, from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Fletcher Tabato is a former teacher and lecturer who turned his mind to politics with New Zealand First, serving two terms before exiting Parliament in 2020. He's now turned to the dark side and works as a lobbyist. Let's see if we can get an understanding about the dark arts of lobbying. He joins me now. Fletcher Tabato, welcome to The Crunch. Thanks, man. Good to be here. Now, you were a teacher, an economics lecturer, a former MP, and now you've turned to the dark side. You're a lobbyist. (laughs) I have been all those things, and yes, I am that. Uh, A lot of the listeners uh, uh, get their views on lobbyists from the mainstream media who almost entirely malign the very work that you guys do. Someone like like me who's involved in politics deeply and has been for decades understands how lobbying works and what can be achieved with lobbying that things like, you know, petitions and signature gathering and public speeches and that can't uh, deliver. So I'd like to explore a little bit about what a lobbyist does and and, and to pop that balloon of this perception that lobbyists are these dark, evil, money-hungry <laughs> sort of people, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that, that's, yeah, it's a nice topic to cover. So, yeah, thanks for thanks for going there. Happy to help. Yeah, so so tell us what a lobbyist does. Well, I suppose if you start with, because um, they've asked the Ministry of Justice to help, you know, set some standards in New Zealand's lobby industry um, over the last maybe as long as a year it's been. I, I haven't been, I've only been a lobbyist for about uh, three weeks, so I don't know the history <laughs> there. But the Ministry of Justice says it's the practice of engaging in advocacy Activities to influence policies and decisions. It takes many forms from phone calls to texts to a a beer or a coffee and maybe even an online media campaign or um, probably more likely a formal office meeting. And and that pretty much blandly (laughs) sums it up. Uh, The reality is what I have been seeing and when you consider the new composition of government, We've got a lot of new ministers there. We've got some amazing experience. Yep. But actually, we've got new ministers who don't know their portfolios with um, any level of detail. Um, I'm not maligning them. It's just the way um, allocations of ministries go to these um, new cabinet ministers. 
And probably more significantly, you've got a whole lot of new staff. I know mm. all the parties in the House are struggling to find good people to staff their offices with senior advisors, uh, researchers, media and comms people. So I see it, quite frankly, as acting on behalf of a client to basically educate the government or the minister or his staff and actually say, look, these are the, the decisions you're thinking about. Did you know that if you do this, this or this, then these things are going to happen? And, it, and it's literally an education campaign um, and making them aware of the implications in the real world Mm. of the decisions they're making. And so it's critically important, no matter uh, who you are in terms of engaging with government, you, you've got to make sure they actually know what the hell's going on. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I've explained to people about lobbying. And there's a perception that ministers know everything about the departments that they're the ministers of. But as I point out to many people, ministers are often ministers of multiple departments and of disparate uh, types of uh, areas as well. So if you look at like Judith Collins, for example, the new attorney general, we know what that role entails. It's looking at all the laws that the government is looking at enacting, making sure it's consistent with the Bill of Rights mm. Act, all of that sort of thing. But on top of that, she's also got the Ministry of Defence. Uh, she's also the minister responsible for GCSB and the SIS. And those are completely different to the disciplines required for being an attorney general. And so you've yeah. got, got yeah. the you've got people who are in positions where they may not know things. And and you know, a good example of this is the pandemic, right? People said, Oh, if only we had had national in charge. And I said, What makes you think that they'd have done anything different? And they said, Well, yeah. you know, they believe this and they believe that. And I said, Yeah, yeah. The problem is is that with the pandemic, it's outside their area of expertise, except maybe for Shane Reti. But they would ask, have asked the same advisors, and the same advisors yeah. would have been there and given the same the advice. Same yep. And that is the problem that there is with ministers and, and advisors, is that ministers who aren't that sharp rely on their advisors, and if their advisors are wonky, then the advice is wonky. It's, it's not even about being sharp, Kim. It's mm. about, um, you intimated before, it's about time management. Mm. So if you've got people coming into your office and uh, purporting to be the experts on behalf of an industry or, you know, whatever policy matters involved and you sit down, take it in, then that's your exposure to whatever the policy issue might be. And so that's that's what you're listening to. You know, when you speak about Judith Collins, Think of her space portfolio now. She must be quite excited to have that portfolio. I don't I don't have any clients in the space sector, but you can imagine now's the time to say um, to, you know, if you're in that sector, God, we should get in front of Judith Collins and just tell her what we do and um, how exciting it is to be mm. able to launch one of 11 countries in the world to be able to launch uh, rockets into space, you know, from New Zealand and all the amazing... Um, secondary business that creates, never mind the uh, core business itself. You know, it's an amazing story to tell. And really and truly, that's what you want your minister to know about and their staff so that they uh, ideally uh, are as passionate as you are about what you're doing. Mm. I mean, that's if you look at Judith Collins, and you, know, you can also look at Winston Peters, for example, 
Malcolm Gladwell, the author, um, popularized the idea that someone needs to spend 10,000 hours at something to become an expert. Mm. They've certainly got 10,000 hours at governance. In terms of ministers, they're incredibly competent in in what they're going to do. But you're right, and you highlighted there's a whole lot of new ministers who haven't had any of the sort of governance uh, exposure not even close to 10,000 hours, uh, and and yet they're um, responsible for very se- serious decision-making processes, and therefore they have to rely on those staff and, uh, and advisors that they've done their 10,000 hours, and there's a good chance they haven't either. So I was talking to a, um, an association yesterday, and basically, all I was saying is because their experience uh, in this specific area is that the officials always push back. They might even concede points mm. and and um, acknowledge what you're saying, but then they push back and nothing seems to happen. And that's that's the policy wonks within the ministries. Um, so so the conversation was very much about well, get good data, get good information, Mm. uh, package it up so it's um, simple but impactful so that (laughs) we can potentially get in front of a minister so that they actually understand what it is their staff and advisors are coming to tell them and hopefully um, be able to push back, have a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of um, understanding of those deeper issues to go, no, 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 hold on hold on, that's not my understanding. Now, if you're a new minister with um, even one portfolio, but more than one, uh, your inclination is going to be all about time management because I don't think people out there understand just how crazy a politician's day is. You know, I started at eight um, every morning and I wouldn't finish. um, Well, do people know that the bells don't ring till 10 Um, o'clock? And that's actually when you're allowed to leave the premises, so you're pretty much trapped in uh, Parliament from eight when you start till ten o'clock at night, and you know ten o'clock wasn't necessarily the home time. And I was an undersecretary, not a not a full minister, and mm. and my workload was continuous and huge. So it's going to be a, a lot about time management. So you have to be very very conscious of that as well. Um, you can't overload these people, and you have to be supportive and try and work with their team just as much as themselves. Yeah, what you're saying about the policy wonks within departments, that's certainly the case in, in areas that I'm, you know, passionate about. I, I collect firearms and I'm I'm a shooter and a hunter and all of those sorts of things. And so watching the government make laws around firearms without actually knowing raw data and then watching them rely upon the police to give them information mm. that 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 is demonstrably false. The basic premise, for example, of behind the gun register is that there's a whole bunch of people out there that are doing what the police call um, straw buying. They're legitimate firearms owners. They're going and buying guns, and then they're on selling them to criminals. A whole lot of people. Jeez, I'd be surprised if there was more than a handful. Well, that's the thing, right? So, So the police tell the politicians, this is dreadful, this is how gangs are getting guns. Uh, this is uh, what we need to do to stop it. And the solution is a gun register. 
of course, it won't stop it stop criminals getting guns. But no. the the basic premise of it is the police can only provide two examples of this happening, and they were such egregious examples that they got caught without having a gun register, kind oh, of destroying okay. the whole yeah, premise. Yeah, yeah of the argument of the police that we need to have a gun register to catch these guys because, well, we caught these guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. The reality no, is, um, is it's very hard to do that, but the police as experts, you know, that advise the minister and advise cabinet mislead the uh, politicians who are making the decisions, but it's the politicians who have to wear the anathema from the shooting community when they pass silly laws that are never going to do what they were intended to do because they were given wrong information to start. Yeah, no, that, that that's exactly where it is. And 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 sometimes it's with the best will in the world, but just as equally the amount of stories I've heard recently of policy people who just have a personal bent and and they control information flow into the minister's office and then they control the flow back from minister's instruction from that office into the ministry. You know, um, there's a million different ways you can interpret uh, different instructions. And so mm. uh, it, it can be a dangerous situation. I don't think anyone, uh, um, anyone's been particularly malicious, but if it doesn't suit a particular personality, I know um, of cases where it's been interpreted to, to suit their you know, their own actual agenda rather than the government's, yeah. which we'll probably yeah. see quite a lot of um, over the next year or so. As um, Well, we're already seeing it, aren't we? Because lobbyists aren't people, just people like you who do it for a job. They could be vested interests in, you know, any different sector, say, in a, in a classic example of what we're seeing of some lobbying going on now directly um, using the media as a conduit is all of this opposition to the new government's policy to wind back the, the silly low nicotine tobacco and, and all of the restrictions that they were going to do to remove sh um, stores selling illegal product. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. pushback that's coming from that are people like Boyd Swinburne, who I've you know interacted with before. They've got this thing called the Health Alliance. They issue press releases that get you know basically word for word verbatim turned into news articles. And they, they create this perception that the public is outraged at these law changes when the reality is, is most people don't care. No, I, I get the impression myself that most people don't care. Most people realise it's just that uh, rolling timetable and everything else is pretty much staying the same. So, yeah, it's just crazy, really. Now, your your firm that you're, you're, you work for has got some an interesting cast of characters. Yes, some awesome people in here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's people that I've had gone head to head with, and and um, and dust ups. Um, that's part of the the game of politics. Yeah, um, but um, it takes all types. But the, the person that interests me the most in your firm is Mike Munro because he used to be an advisor to Helen Clark. Yeah, yeah. And um, he, when he left, and this is my observation, I don't know if it's right or not. And maybe you can go and have a chat with him and say this is Cam's impression. Okay. When, when he left um, working for Helen Clark, the wheels fell off her direction, and it was the beginning of the end of her. Because my impression and what I've heard from about Mike Munro is that he was quite willing to push back against Helen Clark if she had a silly idea or um, something wasn't practical. 
and that that struck me as a person with integrity that was prepared to, to not just say yes minister you know like the movie, the tv program <laughs> in your experience is that is that a rare commodity that there'll be somebody who does push back inside the office um with the minister and and do you then now that you're on the outside, do you try and find who those people are because they can be good advocates for what you're you're trying to achieve? Um, that's a really good question. So my personal experience was that I created a high level of trust in my office. Mm. And so the team knew that if they thought I was being a dick or I was personally heading down the wrong path, they could absolutely push back. But you can imagine some ministers with uh, massive egos being quite fragile about that and quite um, <laughs> not wanting to um, have that kind of uh, pushback in their own space. So I bet you it's a personal thing. And, yeah, I think you're bang on. Like I've only been doing this like three weeks and and actually all parties are struggling to find staff, as I said. Mm. So um, I, I think it's going to be a long-term kind of get to know the people in parliament, get to know the officers and, and and the ministers and, you know, understand who's actually willing to listen because what most people seem to think is a lobbyist can go in and just tell a minister what to do. It just doesn't work it doesn't, like it doesn't, that. No, it doesn't work like that. So you've, you've got to build relationships and you've got to get to know people and understand uh, where they're coming from. And, and sometimes you just have to simply tell a client, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> You know, you're, you're pushing the proverbial uphill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have been known to do some lobbying in the past. Most often it's a, it's a love job that I don't charge for it. But sometimes people come to me and say, look, can, Cam, can you get this in front of a minister or can you get this in front of an MP and can you make this happen? And, I, and you're right, you have to sometimes sit back and say, well, I'd love to take your money and tell you that I'm going to do all of this. Yeah, but, yeah. But this is reality, and that's not going to fly. And sometimes they just like can't believe that this is the case. Yeah. Like, hang on, <laughs> you know, you know these people. I said, yeah, yeah I know them. Yeah, but that, and but it, I don't think that's an idea that's going to fly. In fact, I might be friends with them, but uh, it probably gives me uh, more certainty in telling you that uh, they're going to look at me, go cross-eyed, and tell me to get out of the office. <laughs> The the one thing that and this is I was giving some advice to somebody um, over breakfast um, yesterday. They came to me and they said, "Look, I've got this problem. I'm going to write this letter. This is what I'm going to do. Can you have a look at it for me?" So I had a look at the letter. It was very lengthy. I looked at who he was uh, intending to send it to, and I said, "Well, this is all nice, this letter, but it doesn't give any solutions." And they said. Well, mm. What do you mean? I said, well, these guys are ministers. If you don't give them a solution or a range of solutions, an option A and option B and option C with all of the things like you just said earlier, um, this is what could happen if you do this and this is what will happen if you do that. And those, if you don't present those as options and make it easy for them to choose one of those options, which you'll be happy with any of those, then they're going to take that letter. They'll probably file it. Maybe they'll ask a couple of people in the office who are advisors to say, what do you think we should do on this? Mm. And if those advisors are exercised in that area, they may think up something 
to do or not to do. But invariably, the status quo prevails, which is do nothing. Yeah, and, at least. At and least so if you've you're... got to produce solution. My advice yeah. to people always when you're going and talking to a minister, present them with a problem and then present them with a range of solutions so that they can choose one. And if you don't do that, then you're just going to have lots of meetings that go nowhere. Yeah, so you're being on the money. And the only thing I would add to that is if you've got a variety of solutions, at the very least, uh, in my own experience, I would send the team away, say, go down to our um, ministry advisors and tell them to give me some responses to these uh, three or four scenarios that have been mm. provided here so that I can understand and and actually start making some informed decisions and maybe then you pick one and start following that path. So, mm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you, you're absolutely right. I remember filing a multitude of um, just letters complaining. Mind you, they weren't normally to me as a minister. They were normally to me as the deputy leader. And so they weren't in my particular purview to be able to do anything about except um, have a uh, discussion with some of the team and then they get get filed away. So, yeah, provide provide scenarios, provide answers, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one of your roles, um, well, according to Wikipedia, I mean, I'm not sure it's true because <laughs> it's on Wikipedia, but one of, you, one of your roles in the last year has been training candidates for New Zealand First to get them ready for A, being an MP, and B, the possibility of ministers. Are you pretty pleased with the result that New Zealand First achieved um, at the election? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm personally stoked. Um, I still have a passion for New Zealand First and its people, and we've got some new people on the team there, and we've got some cabinet ministers, we've got ministers outside of cabinet and we've got some undersecretaries so there's there's a raft of responsibilities uh, being handed mm. out there which is you know it's it's incredible really so yes I was changed uh, part of the uh, team that was training not only our candidates but when they got into Wellington I came down and ran some sessions uh, with the new MPs as well so yeah that that was that was a lot of fun of the the new MPs, um, you know, obviously we've got Winston and Shane um, sitting in there with vast experience of governance um, and and how Parliament operates. There's a whole bunch of new people. Obviously, Jenny Marcroft's back again, who's got a little bit of experience. Mark Patterson's back again. Mark Patterson's back. Uh, Casey yep. Costello would have to be the standout, though, wouldn't she? Of, I think so. I, I think there's been a lot of a lot of um, the wrong it's the wrong word is hype but there's been a lot of um talk uh, around Casey um now obviously I've uh, worked with her now and seen her operate mm. um I think people can tell that she's she's a deep thinker she's quite considerate and and then when she does speak she's actually very articulate and considered in what she says so yeah I personally um and stoked that she's been allocated um, some ministerial and associate ministerial roles. So I, I, I think we'll see some great outcomes there, particularly in seniors, for example. Yeah, I mean, I've interviewed her twice uh, on the crunch, and both times uh, she impressed me 
immensely um, with the depth of knowledge and just the core common sense that exists within her. And, you know, you see that coming out in comments that, you know, from Shane Jones, for example, on Tuesday yes. when, you know, um, Casey's making those same things. There's a lot of comment around at the moment from Maori or purporting to speak for all Maori, representing all Maori, even though they're going to got 3% of the, um, you know, half of what New Zealand First got and less than half of what ACT got. There's accusations that the new government is racist. Yeah. And yet 35% of, of the cabinet are Maori. It's the highest ever level of Maori. It is. As it is. cabinet ministers in yeah. the cabinet. And it's almost not mentioned at all uh, no. because there seems to be a perception that these are the wrong sort of Maori. No, I, I think I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. So I get I get I'm I'm a proud Maori from Te Arua, you know, and mm. I I love my Fano and I'm proud of my Whakapapa on that side of the family as much as I am of, of that Tabuto name, the French ancestry mm. there. But when when people stand up, either um, uh, in public or you know at meetings or stuff, and start saying they're speaking on behalf of all Maori, it literally just makes me angry in my gut. It's going to, no, you don't. It's and, and fundamentally, I think we're being let down by the politicians and uh, the media in particular. I think it's great to see Shane Jones, uh, Casey and Winston uh, able and comfortable to push back. But it's kind of, you. the Māori Party have got away for too long as saying they represent Māori. They don't. They seem to be creating a victimhood um, and then uh, getting a, lot, a few people along for the ride. And it's just so upsetting and distressing to watch. I mean, it's frustrating uh, to see it and to see the media hurl these labels out there. Uh, you know, the Maori Party presented their protest on Tuesday with a couple of crossed guns. In, yeah. in in some images now, if that had been New Zealand First doing that, there would have been an outrage. If it had been ACT had done that with crossed guns, yeah, you know, if there would have been an outrage. If they had had the minister who's now responsible for all the firearms things, who was out there, you know, parading around with a firearm, there would be all sorts of outrage. But the Maori Party seems to be able to get away with overt intimidation and threats either through their language or through their imagery yeah so to be honest um i, I kind of picked it um during near the start of the election campaign that this was going to be a different maori than um peter sharples and uh Tariana, even, Tariana. yeah yeah and even um jimmy flavel you know te urudua flavel mm. you know th the there was a yeah, there was a class and a um, a mana, a mana about them, mm. and uh, yeah, unfortunately, it seems uh, Shane used a beautiful word yesterday about uh, theatrics, and um, yeah, and, and and that's that's where the Maori Party see see their chance, which is yeah, really upsetting because. Uh, you know, I'm not a politician anymore and I'm starting to speak politically, but, uh, uh, you know, Māori want, you know, good housing, good education. Want the same thing as everybody else wants, right? Exactly. 
Yeah. And, and, and that, that's the message that Shane Jones says almost every time he's interviewed. Maori want the same thing as everybody else. You know, why can't yeah, we yeah. all just get along? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're in this together. People need to realise that there's more in, holding us in common than there is uh, tearing us apart. And those who choose to tear us apart are kind of missing the point, man. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, I was reading a, a, an article on stuff, uh, you know, forgive me um, for my sins, but I was reading an article on stuff. And I got to the end of the article and it's it's stated that the journalist was of this Nati Perot descent and this sort of descent and that sort of, I'm sitting there thinking, what on earth is this? You know, where is the little ride? Like imagine if I was writing for stuff, what would I put? That um, you know, I'm of Scottish descent, but born in Fiji, and put they wouldn't even consider putting that there. But because the author is or the journalist is a Maori, they put all of their mm. whakapapa in there. And and I'm thinking, what is the point of this? We just want the news. We just want. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to know about you. You're you're just the conduit for that. But here we've yeah. got all of this stuff. Yeah, there's and, and a time and a time and a place I, I love it I'm getting old now I'm nearly 50 and so when I meet uh, people from around the country I do kind of start to share whakapapa and start telling stories about different families and it and it can be amazing because it can create a real connection but you're right there's a time and a place it's kind of no no you're a reporter doing a job it's kind of what's mm. that got to do with your your ancestry and your um your grandmother and your grandfather kind of thing and I think I think I'd also make the point is, uh, you know, if you actually circulate in the Maori world, which I do, and you talk to hapu leaders and iwi leaders, mm. even from within Te Arawa, they they don't agree with one another, and they don't agree with one another on fundamentals on how to best help their people, uh, economic strategies, investment strategies, um, you know, what type mm. of bloody house to build for Fano. So to describe Māori as some amorphous, unified race, to do a disservice to Māori and to do a disservice to all the individuals who are passionate about, um, you know, making a difference themselves. I mean, that's the thing. There's a headline on stuff on uh, on Wednesday morning. It says, you know, divisions in national over Māori policies. And they're making out that national is all over the place when it comes to Maori policies, that they're not speaking with one voice, that, that there's anxiety within national. And I'm sitting there thinking, what have we become that we aren't allowed to have discussions about things anymore? We're not allowed to have debates, whether they're robust or otherwise, yeah. because there's there seems to be, and this is where the Maori party uh, uh, seems to be very doctrinaire, in in their claims, I mean, you know, Debbie Nariwa Packer was saying that um, you know we can discount what New Zealand First says and acts because they only got six and eight percent. Completely forgetting, of course, she represents a party that only got three percent. But yeah, I, I was listening to her math and argument uh, when she was sitting with Shane on TV, and um, yeah, I think I have to agree with you on that one. I mean, they're sitting there saying. We can't have a debate on the about the treaty. This is our truth, and this is our um, slant on what we believe the treaty says, and that there shall be no debate. 
at all. And anybody who wants to debate that is racist. And it mm. and it it is destroying our society, is creating the division, enforcing unity. Yeah. The only thing I'd say about that is all I've seen over the last 30, 40 years is the interpretation of the treaty itself mm. has changed and evolved. And and that's that's been driven by different individuals. And as people like it or not, it's they've come on board or, or opposed it. And so it evolves and individuals have been at the core of that evolution. And so, yeah, you know, to say this is it, yeah, it's it's just not right. I mean, I guess the Maori Party is doing their own form of lobbying. They're lobbying the general public, saying that we are right and everyone else is wrong. And uh, if you don't like it, well, we're going to disrupt your traffic and we're going to keep doing this until we get what we want. Well, they've seen great results from being angry, right? And so uh, <laughs> I think I think we're going to see them get angrier. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the sad part of it. And I guess yeah. that's where... You know, I think a lot of the voters of New Zealand First and Act are expecting both of those parties and their MPs to stand up and say, no, you, that's actually, you know, you, that's your view. You're entitled to your view. This is our view. And we're going to have a discussion about this. Yeah, well, let's put it this way. I've really enjoyed uh, watching Shane. You know, he did a lot of media yesterday and, mm. uh, mate, he hit the nail on the head every time. Well, the thing is, is he's so deeply involved in it as well, you know, especially up north and dealing with, you know, he was explaining to me on in an interview about a particular development that they wanted to get off the ground. And there was something like um, 15 hapu involved in the area that it involved, and not one single one of them agreed with the other one. No, exactly. And so you got this inability to progress anything because the government of the day has said that we need to have everyone agree that this is a good idea to do this. And mm. so nothing ever happens because nobody actually sits down and, and works out what are the things that we're aligned with, where are these are the exceptions, can we mitigate those, can we find a, a pathway through it. It's almost impossible. And, you know, I'm talking to another guy who's involved in the Western Bay of Plenty down your way, and he said, you know, um, the three waters legislation was always going to be a disaster because in his area, there's something like 17 hapu that none of them agree on anything. And, and no, no, I was actually doing some work back immediately after leaving parliament, trying to understand uh, hapu's interaction with the three waters and, and their own work. And, and, and that was true um, almost everywhere uh, to mm -hmm. find unity of voice across different geographical patches, uh, you know, in the form of hapu was uh, almost impossible. Mm. It, it's until we can solve this inability to discuss things without resorting to insults and performances, I really fear for our democracy. Do you have the same sort of trepidation? Yeah, well, what I fear is um, when I would speak up against the uh, rort that was the interpretation of democracy as far as Māori representation was concerned and speak against that, mm. um, suddenly I was completely anti-Māori in all things. And yet, you know, I have the privilege of sitting on my paipai and, and one of my marae and, 
you know, love my aunties out there who are abusing me to get in the kitchen. And, uh, you know, I love, I'm still passionate about trying to learn the reo more. And, mm. you know, half my family are in Kapahaka, um, being in Te Arawa, And I love it. You know, it, it's who mm. I am. It's, it's how I was raised. Uh, my objection to uh, the interpretation of uh, democracy and representation, unfortunately, means that for some, they have to paint me a picture as being uh, anti-Maori. And so that's what's happening more and more. You're a, you're an old white man. You don't understand, even, even though my circumstances might be completely different to others. Or, uh, you know, you just, you, you get lumped into a, into a stereotype based on one quite precise um, position you might have, and then you're categorised, and that's what's dangerous. You can't be nuanced. You can't have a discussion. You can't talk around the grey areas and um, trying to work through the detail. I mean, it we saw that. Or nothing. We saw yeah. that. We saw that on Tuesday, didn't we, with Debbie Nariwa Packer insulting Shane Jones as being old and out of touch. Yeah, yeah, and he was just replying to her arguments. I mean, you know, was, she, she, she stated that you know that this government has insulted twenty percent of the population. Well, I mean, no, that, that, no. that statement can't stand. No. I mean, for a start, Maori is seventeen percent of the population, so she's you know inflated that. But she again, through you know, three percent of the vote, not even all of Maori voted for the Maori Party. Look, I think here's the, here's the stat for you. I don't think most people realise this. So New Zealand First, I think, are the only political party that won all the Māori seats. Yeah. But I think they did it with more than 50% of the Māori vote Yeah. back in the day. How's that for statistics? How's that for a powerful messaging? But, um, yeah, what, what we've got today doesn't even come close. Yeah, I mean, they got 3% of the total vote. Three percent out of seventeen percent. It's it. It's not a mandate. They might have won six of the seats, but it's not a mandate. No. And yet they they have a voice that's larger than they deserve. Actually, you know, it, it's astonishing. I'm just trying to look up those stats from 1996. Can't find them. I'm going to research that one, Fletcher. I really yeah, am. Yeah, yeah. Look it up. Going to look it up because I think that's an important one, you know. That if you want, if you win, yeah, that's right. New Zealand first won 17 seats, sweeping every single Maori electorate, all of which have been nominated by the Labour Party. You know, that was a huge uh, accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. And the percentage was with, with which they did it as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. Yeah, that was 13% of the electorate, 13.35%, um, you know, double where they are now. Yeah, you know it just frustrates me now as a commentator, as a as a radio host, to see it, who relies on communication, talking to all parties and things like that, where there seems to be this polarization that's come about in New Zealand society, at least in the last ten years, certainly in the last six, where if you're not an approved person, you can't you can't speak with that mm. person. Mm. Yeah. You know, and it shuts off avenues of discussion. And if we're not discussing and if we're not debating and we're not challenging ideas, then we don't have a contest of ideas and then we've lost something. 
and the the slide then is towards a homogeny of, of ideas that are approved by I don't know some group of yeah well that's students. the scary part a, a homogeny of ideas almost sounds nice doesn't it except you're going to have a head to that who's got to approve what those ideas to are and that those ideas are and that that is probably the most frightening thing uh, when we look around world history that you could possibly contemplate. Yeah, I mean, if we look at at our history, you know, collectively, when you had this cult of personality, you know, in the Roman Empire, for example, you know, where they the emperor was a god uh, and they could do no wrong, even when they were, you know, demonstrably evil or uh, just stupid, uh, like Nero, for example. Mm. Um there was, but you can't go against that. We've seen that with totalitarianism in the 20th century, with the rise of people like Mussolini, uh, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, you know, even Pol Pot in Cambodia, uh, the rise of communism, where you have that homogeny of ideas where the leader is paramount. Nothing good comes of any of that. No, because in all of those cases, it was enforced uh, physically through violence and intimidation, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so that, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's horrible to contemplate. What we should be doing is trying to find our commonalities. I think, I think uh, the Maori Party leaders might be surprised that uh, their Pakia uh, neighbours across the way uh, probably experience much of the same struggles as they are right now, and um, that actually, uh, you know, there's more that unites us than divides us, and. Uh, we, we've got to get back to that place and, and talk that way. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's that was actually what the result of the election was. It was a rejection of the division that had been fostered by Ardern and then Hipkins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The media seemed to keep talking about how this government's being divisive and stuff. Well, it didn't start with this government. This government is a response to where it began. So, yeah, it's yeah, it's very. Mm. It's going to be, let's put it this way, it's going to be interesting for a while. Well, I mean, that brings it, I guess, back to lobbying because the the role of a lobbyist is to uh, have conversations, have an imparting of knowledge uh, where knowledge doesn't exist or hasn't existed before. And um, that's one of the key roles that I've experienced in watching and interacting with lobbyists over time. Uh, looking for solutions to solve particular problems, either for a client or for a group of society or whoever you're representing. And you can only achieve that if you're actually sitting down face-to-face with the decision-makers and being able to argue your point or um, debate a particular issue. If we cease to be able to do that, uh, and you know, this is where you know, I see these controls coming in wanting to restrict what lobbyists can can say or do or or how they act is actually probably going to not destroy the industry, but destroy the importance of the discourse that occurs as a result of that. Well, I think some people seem to have in mind that lobbyists um, only work for big corporate giants, those with lots of money. Um, When I left Parliament, I made contact with Blind Low Vision New Zealand. I'm I'm legally blind and I um, worked with them when I was in Parliament, thought I hadn't done enough. So I went and said, 
how can I help? And mm. so I spent I spent the last three years voluntarily um, helping blind no vision design policy, uh, write draft legislation, try and engage with ministers, both their minister and um, ministers in the periphery, just to try and tell a story about the inadequacy of the health system's response to people who are struggling with vision. And so, you know, if people understand that Greenpeace is a lobby group or, um, you know, Blind Low Vision New Zealand's a lobby group, it puts it in perspective that it's not it's not just these big giant corporates. And I'm not saying that that's wrong either. Actually, they, they're trying to um, create business, create jobs, mm. um, create massive tax revenue for the company, uh, for the country most of the time. So it's a spectrum and um, it's all about, uh, creating understanding in that in that building we call the beehive. Yeah, or the wasp nest, as our listeners like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Fletcher, it's um, it's been a, a fascinating little discussion, and I think that the listeners will have a better understanding about the role of lobbyists, that they're not all um, evil Machiavellian-type people that are seeking to subjugate um society no, <laughs> that, 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 that you actually care deeply about the the topics and the um clients that you're working for um trying to res- achieve the same results that people often say they're going to stand for parliament for there's exactly the- and, and it's actually uh, i've noticed that there's a lot of crossovers that as a politician who was um, an undersecretary and even in the backbench in the day you're trying to be an advocate and a voice to get in front of ministers and um, make sure they understand the full picture. So, yeah, man, thanks for the chance to chat. I appreciated it. No problem, and I'm sure we'll chat again. And uh, the offer goes out to the other members of your team there as well that uh, if they want to have a chat with the new CAM, the nice CAM that uh, they probably don't recognise, then I'm all ears. I'm all ears and willing to have them on the show as well. All right, man. I'll pass the message on. All right, thank you. All right, cheers, Ken. Well, there you have it. A bit of an insight into the dark arts of political lobbying, and a little bit extra talking about the overt racism or the allegations of racism of this government. Don't say ever that I've kept you in the dark about how all of these things work. It's a little bit like asking people how sausages are made. If you knew, you wouldn't eat them. But now you know how politics works. Tell me your thoughts on what Fletcher had to say by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. George Wood is the former mayor of North Shore City. He's also been an Auckland councillor and is now on a local board. George has forgotten more about local body politics than others have learned. And this promises to be very interesting. He joins me on the line now. Welcome to The Crunch, George. 
pleasure to yeah. have you here. I haven't spoken to you for a long time, so it's good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. What's going on at Auckland Council? Well, quite frankly, it's it's a pretty turbulent and, for me, it's somewhat confusing as to uh, trying to get to the bottom of things. But uh, at the moment, everybody's saying that the council's strapped for cash. And I think the mayor coming out in the last few days and saying that uh, uh, the CRL, the Central Rail Link, is going to cost them uh, 160 um, million dollars per annum uh, from when it, it gets gets going on in um, 2026. Uh, my, and so that the ratepayers will be up for um, that figure minus 40 million dollars in revenue. So it's a pretty daunting task that Central Rail Link, and I think that's probably the cornerstone of the fact that uh, we've overspent money, but that project has just been the icing on the cake that has really sunk the Auckland Council. This was predicted, really, wasn't it, by a lot of local body politicians who said that this was going to be a white elephant, that uh, it was going to you know, add huge costs. I mean, the numbers are staggering, $220 million a year to operate it with revenue of $40 million coming off that. No, no. That, that, that's what that's what the Bernard Orsman wrote in the Herald, $220 million a year to operate once it opens yeah. in 2026, less the $40 million of the revenue that they'll get from it. Yes, but the, the ratepayers are in hock for $220 million, and that's, that, that's after the $40 million of revenue has been taken out. So right, right. it's a daunting task and a daunting problem that the ratepayers of Auckland are going to have to get over. Yeah. But on the surface of it, this looks like there's no business case. Like if you've got costs of $220 million and revenue of just $40 million, you're never going to get ahead. I mean, the interest costs on the loans alone are $160 million per annum. Yes, well, you know, that was always said. And I remember Dick Quacks, who was on the council with me for the first six years that I was there, mm. um, always used to say to the mayor, this is going to be a $6 billion project, Mr. Mayor. And he'd say, you're a naysayer, Quacks. Uh, it won't be anything like that. Don't worry, don't worry. Well the chickens have come home to roost and uh, and poor old uh, Wayne Brown is now saddled with that and uh, it's it's siphoned all the funds from other areas of council because that level of debt that the council's looking at down the barrel of is, is a colossal uh, imposition. This all comes back to Len Brown's mayoralty, doesn't it? Uh, yes, I mean... Who would ever have started a project of this magnitude without having a sign-off from the government of the day as to what they were going to contribute? And even, I think, Winston Peters, he was saying he would put in something like 75% of the um, of the cost of the project. That was back in, well, after the project started. And the project got underway uh, before any government sign-off had been authorised and Len started negotiating with precinct, precinct properties 
that bought the big building opposite the Brindamart um, rail station at the bottom of Queen Street so that he could then wanted to put the the two tunnels under that property that precinct have now built and finished and then run it up Albert Street and he started he he got precinct to sign up to put the put the uh, tunnels under that building and then he started the cut and cover up Albert Street and that's been going um for uh that was going for quite some time and before John Key came to the party and uh and agreed to put in 50%. And that 50% came from Phil Goff and Phil Twyford back at the 2011 general election when Goff was the leader of the opposition standing for, uh, to stand for the prime minister's position. He put up this offer of 50-50 split between Auckland Council and the government in Wellington. And, uh, you know, and I actually sneaked along to his meeting just to hear what he was going to offer, and that's what he offered. And then in the following election, 2014, I actually confronted um, one of the others uh, who in the in the government, and he confirmed that they were still sticking to that 50-50 split. So it was obvious that but the cost of the thing was a lot less at that stage. It was about 2.4 billion. And obviously, it's just keep rising, and it's now up to uh, 5.4. So it's a great, in, you know, impediment for Auckland at the present time. So you're saying, what's it like at the council? Every day when you're talking about anything, the issue of we've got no money keeps coming up. You know, I, I look back on that time, and it seemed to me that Lynn Brown's plan was to get it started, and then they'll it will force the government into having to cough up with it along the way. But there was never seemed to be any cost-benefit analysis done that was based on reality. I mean, if you've got 40 million revenue and costs of 220 million, it doesn't make sense. I can't make sense of it, but it's it's too late. The decisions are made and they're locked in, and Aucklanders are now going to be facing you know, double-digit um, rates increases when every politician always promises 3% or less. Yeah, well, that, that is that is the issue. And I mean, Len knew that he was short on information as to what the project was overall going to cost. And uh, it was a more audacious project at that stage because he's he also had a, rail, a deep down in the earth rail station at the top of Simon Street and then that was, and then he had the the station down at Mount Eden, which has now been changed. And that station at Mount Eden has taken over from what he was going to have at Simon Street. So he cut that out. He cut that whole station out. And then he also cut out, I think it was six hundred million dollars that he was going to spend to buy more rolling stock, electric rolling stock, so that when it opened, uh, he would have enough um, rolling stock to keep it going. So the whole project, that project has cost Aucklanders and New Zealanders a huge amount of money because as well as the CRL, there's been all the money that's been spent on the rolling stock and also um, the uh, upgrade of the tracks right across Auckland. So, it, it, no, I don't say that. I would say that very there'd be very few understanding what the total cost of that project has cost altogether. 
But when you look at it, okay, it goes to South Auckland and there's a lot of people that live in those those suburbs in South Auckland. It goes out to West Auckland, but it winds out around New Lynn, then it goes to Fruitvale and Sunnyvale and these places that people have never heard about, they've never heard of, and, and eventually gets to Henderson and then gets up to Swanson out in the West. So, And in the meantime, you've got all those people that live in places like Massey, the new area of Whanuapai, and they're miles away from that, that train line, and they're now clamouring for a busway that'll take them from Massey through to the Auckland city centre. So, which is which is what yeah. which is what people on the North Shore have is a busway. Now you yeah. were you were involved in the early days of the busway. That's actually a successful public infrastructure project, isn't it? Yeah, look, I I, I pushed that project very hard, and it was in Helen Clark's when the Helen Clark was government was in place. Um, Mark Goshi was the Minister of Transport, and mm. he came to the party with the funding for that particular project. And so we we had signed up with the government well before the project started, uh, as opposed to what's happened with the CRL. And, uh, you know, Len used to always put that back in my face saying, George, you've got your um, busway over there. We deserve something like, we deserve decent transport in South Auckland and West Auckland. But the figures that he's talking about uh, huge compared to what we were talking about on the North Shore. We did it on the smell of an oily rag. He spent, they've spent megabucks on the CRL project. Yeah, I mean, that bus, I mean, I don't use public transport. I, I'm one of these people who believes that public transport's for other people to use, but that's just my facetious way of dealing with things. I mean, at the moment, the only, uh, that there's evidence that I do take public transport because they've got my picture plastered all over the back of, of buses at the moment that are running around, which I think is hugely funny. But that busway and the extension now out to Otiha Valley has removed all of that, all those buses and you know also emergency vehicles can use the busway off the motorway. Um, you've also got all of the... You know, if you look at the car parks that are associated with each of those bus stations, they're always chocker. So it's a classic case of infrastructure that was well thought out, well planned, and has been embraced by um, the ratepayers as a as a convenient way for them to get into the city. But yeah. Why, why why didn't we do that with south of the bridge? Why did we build this rail system, which every time it rains, the trains stop? Uh, anytime there's a blockage, the trains stop. With buses and things like that, if there's a blockage, you can go around the blockage, but you can't do that with trains. It just seems illogical. And then we've got this addiction to rail um, out to the airport as well that they want to do. And that's just ridiculous. I'm I'm just glad that the current government has you know knocked that on the head because that was stupidity extraordinaire. Well, yeah, I mean... Unfortunately, Auckland as a city never um, took on commuter rail like they've done in Sydney, London, Paris, you know, big cities overseas. And we're now running um, freight trains on the same lines that the uh, metro trains run on. And uh, if a freight train breaks down, it causes all mayhem on, mm. on the, uh, the metro for the metro passengers because the trains can't um, get up the line. So, and then, um, and then what do they just, do when that happens? They put on buses. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, why don't we just yeah. build buses in the first place? You know. Well, that's been one of the problems with the system is that buses have had to be substituted for tra- trains, and I bet they do it again over the Christmas holidays, which is what they do many weekends and over the holidays, because the whole thing has never been thought out and put in place properly. Um, you know, and what the cost of it is for the ratepayers will be a very interesting. Um, outcome of the whole thing, I think. I mean, you were a councillor uh, at the start of the Super City. Obviously, previously, you'd been the mayor of North Shore City. Do you think the Auckland Council, the new Super City, has delivered on the promises that the politicians made about it? Um, probably not at this stage. And with these debts that we're now being faced with, I would say that there's, it's it's finally balanced as to as to whether we are going to um, see the outcomes which the Royal Commission um, indicated that Auckland could see if it was done properly. And that's the problem, is that we got in there, um, the mayor and his so, um, supporters saw that there was a lot of funds there, there was a lot of projects that they hadn't seen in, in the areas that they wanted to see development happening. So. We had a lot of projects built in places um, on the the whim of the mayor, um, which cost millions and millions of dollars. And coupled with the rail project and other projects of that ilk, um, this is really putting the pressure on um, the council and the ratepayers. And I think it's a major um, impediment that people are now having to deal with, and they're going to be dealing with it for many years to come. I mean, the, the the Royal Commission said to us, and Rodney Hyde was the minister who implemented it, told us that there was going to be significant savings through economies of scale in a yes. whole range of areas where we would have um, a third less staff than the previous you know, individual cities combined. We now have more staff. Uh, we've got none of the savings. Uh, and we've got rates increases on rates increases on rates increases, and we've had a, a succession of mayors who have promised the earth and delivered very little. What are we yeah, going to do to actually solve this? And is Wayne Brown the guy that's going to fix it? I mean, he's told us he's the Mr. Fix-It. Is, is he capable of fixing this, or is it just too much of a problem and we need to start again somehow? Well, I think Wayne is in a bit of an invidious situation because he you, you saw it the last last year when he was doing his annual plan, he wanted to sell all the airport shares and unfortunately um, it never happened because the councillors wouldn't support him. And I think that that's the problem that Wayne is facing at the present time. He doesn't have the support of his councillors, and if you don't have that support, um, it puts you in a very difficult situation. And uh, you know, Wayne, um, I don't, I don't think Wayne actually probably appreciated the gravity of the situation that he was going to be getting himself into. And he's now there, and um, it's it's very difficult to um, try and sell assets. Uh, he's trying to sell. He's talking about more um, airport shares, but he's also telling, talking about selling the business down at um, at the port of Auckland, 
Um, you know, and they're also trying to sell every bit of land they can put their hands on at the moment, trying to balance the books. So that's council land that they own, and um, they've been doing it since Len Brown's days, but it just seems that the pressure's come on stronger now than it was previously. There's a lot of systemic problems from an outsider looking in at Auckland Council. And, you know, I look at the processes that everybody, you know, there's an annual budget, then there's a 10-year budget process, and it seems like the 10-year budget process happens every year. Can can you explain that a little bit if you... No, no the 10-year the, the budget is the, the plan as to how Auckland's going to spend its funding or money money over the next 10 years but the plan is updated every three years right so it's it's being updated at the present time so that it can be start the next 10 years um next year and and so that's what uh, wayne brown is doing right now and then in the intervening um years bet- between establishing the new long-term 10-year plan they do a kind of a just a, a mini catch-up with of any any expenditure they want to add to the budget um and that goes for the next two a year two and yes a year one two yeah so in the intervening period it's that mini budget that happens but everything must be put into that budget that's that's going to be spent um for that for that spending to happen over the next 10 years. So things like development levies, all projects have to be in there because the council take development levies from people that are developing land, building houses, changing your place. You've got to pay a a levy to the council for capital costs. And all those uh, capital costs must be in that 10 year budget. So um, those bean counters are able to put down what the rate of the rate increase for the next 10 years will be. And that's how you can say it's going to be 7.5% in the year coming up, then 3 is it 3.5%, and, mm. and then 8% in the third year. And then, then they'll redo another budget. But, you know, people can't live in a world where you're paying is it about 19% over three years? Um, and, you know, we've been paying increased rates or targeted rates. Phil Goff bought in the way of, of saying that he wasn't putting the rates up more than a certain figure by bringing in targeted rates like the uh, water quality targeted rate, mm. um, the targeted rate for looking after natural resources out in the bush, and then the rubbish targeted rate. All those targeted rates, they they don't get included in that percentage increase. So there's a bit of a myth there. It's and, a flim flam, isn't it? It's it's yeah. it's actually a fraud on the ratepayers. Well, it is a it is a it is a fraud in what they say they're going to do and what it how it ends up. So people believe that it's going to be say seven and a half percent if if what Ray, Wayne Brown's proposed at this stage comes to pass, but there could be other increases that'll happen as well. And rubbish rubbish disposal is one where there are a number of different rates uh, in order to uh, make up or to balance the books with that activity of council. And you would know that you have a, a rubbish collection for 
uh, recyclables or papers and cans and that kind of stuff. Then you have another one these days for kitchen waste, which goes all the way to Riparoa to be processed. And then you have another one for solid waste. And despite the fact you also have to put a tag on your rubbish bin when it goes out, but that doesn't cover all the costs. So in the past, there's been uh, it's been a situation where there's been competition in that rubbish collection business. You've had companies like Enviro Waste, Waste Management, other companies have been going around and they've been competing against the council. And the council found, found themselves very vulnerable over that. So now they've decided that they'll charge those funds with a, a, another increase on your rates so that the, it'll eliminate those private contractors or rubbish collectors because everyone will have to pay a rate and no one's going to pay a rate and then go and get a private contractor. So Enviro Waste, they're pulling out, I think it's by about April next year, because they obviously realise that the council is going to make it impossible for them to complete in, compete in the rubbish marketplace. Mm. So that kind of thing um, is where the poor pe- person out there in, in the territories uh, is getting s- knocked all the time for, for more money from the council. It, it, rubbish has always been a bugbear for me. When I lived in Whangapara, we didn't have any council rubbish collection. We had to pay for our own bins to to be collected. And then when I moved into the North Shore area, um, I had to buy tags for rubbish. But when I was a kid and, you know, living in Epsom and places like that, we never paid for rubbish. The council came and collected it, and it's, they still collect it. And there's this disparity between south of the bridge rubbish collection and north of the bridge rubbish collection where people north of the bridge have to pay extra to have their rubbish taken away when everybody else south of the bridge gets their rubbish taken away anyway no it's not it's not like that you pay it in your rates in the old Auckland council area yeah we didn't pay it here well we didn't pay it here when we had to pay a tag or buy buy a bin or buy a bag from the supermarket yeah yeah, yeah. so it was Probably there was some equalisation there, but then in South Auckland, uh, in in the, in in the old Manukau area, they get they dished out big plastic bags, and they could put out as many bags as they wished. So there wasn't any unified or uniform system of, of collection of rubbish across Auckland. And what they've been trying to do is trying to find ways to kind of unify the system so that. Everybody gets the same yeah. same deal, but that it's it's been it's proven to be beyond their capabilities to do it because it was such a big difference. And also, Auckland and Manukau had that busy um, where they sorted out the uh, the the, um, the recyclables. The, yeah, the recyclables out at Onihanga, and that had a big different made it different out there so we never had that on the north shore but it all each area seemed to work reasonably well but they after 12 or 13 years they still haven't cracked it as to how they're going to make it more equitable um in each of the areas difficult i mean there's all these pressures that are coming on the budget and if i look back at the lynn brown years there's a couple of white elephants that stand out from his mayoralty. The first one is, of course, the central rail loop, which is enormous costs. But the other one is this fanciful canoe centre that he wanted built 
at uh, at Manukau. And every time I drive past there, I sort of crane my neck and look over from the motorway to see if I can see even one person canoeing around that place. And I'm yet to see anybody in it. Yeah. How are these projects established, funded, on what basis, what sort of cost-benefit ratio is there? Or is it just, you know, um, build it in the will come mentality, which then fails abjectly? It, it seems well, ridiculous, and we're and we're now paying the costs of thirteen years of these boondoggles. Well, you know, um, Len obviously promised a number of organisations and people funds when he was campaigning against John Banks back in two thousand and ten, hmm. and and the kind of projects were um, the Auckland Theatre Company. They built They were building a building down in the um, Winyard Quarter. And which has been built and next to the ASB building down there, um, a beautiful theatre. Um, Len was, I think, it was ten million dollars he had promised he'd put into that, and uh, that came to pass. Len put in uh, there was the the uh, Whitewater Canoeing um, Centre out at the uh, Manukau Centre. He obviously put that. I think I think Dick Quacks used to say it was forty million dollars. And Dick was hot to trot on that, and Len, Len still went ahead and did it. And then there were others. Um, you know, you've got me thinking now, but they, there were others that he had. I remember he came back once and said that he was going to put three. I think it was three million dollars into the Anglican Church at the top of Parnell, and uh, he got us all to go up there. And they gave us a, a, a look around and showed us what a great project it was. I didn't support it. Um, because uh, it was another thing that he just wanted to do it on an ad hoc basis. And you can't do make fish afoul of one and foul of another, which is the way he kind of wanted to operate, unfortunately. And, you know, the, it, and the CRL has um, really shown that um, he, he made some major mistakes, I think. And that whitewater rafting thing, that was a sop to one of his donors in reality. Um, who coincidentally happened to run a company that need, that sold concrete, and of course the Whitewater Centre needed a lot of concrete. Yeah, it, it, it didn't yeah. seem to ever make sense, um, and yet it was pushed uh, very, very hard. Uh, it was lobbied for. It was heroic. The uh, the business case for it, and I remember looking into it at the time. And think, my word, what on earth is going on here? But now we've got the costs of it. Yeah, look, I don't know. I haven't had anything to do with that since I left the the governing body over in the city. But um, you know, I don't know if we put any money into that. But I I do know that you know things like Eden Park. They were trying to build a stadium out there for the Rugby World Cup in two thousand and eleven, and uh, Len was very supportive of. Um, Eden Park, uh, and I think the council put in, they put in quite a lot of money into that, which I think may be still on their books at the present time. So, you know, and that's and the stadium, um, are very costly, especially Eden Park, which isn't owned by the council, it's a, it's a standalone trust. But, um, the, the council for Auckland council, especially, have been very generous to them. And now we are looking down the gun of um, what they're going to do at North Harbour Stadium because they say that 
North Harbour Stadium's costing them too much and can't be sustained into the future. So, um, yeah, it's it's there's a bit of unfairness, I think, on occasions. Yeah, and Stadia is uh, huge white elephants. They almost never make money. Um, and yet we've, we're hearing now proposals of another stadium um, being proposed down the waterfront. Yeah, How although that's billions sounds, is that going to cost? Yeah, I think that may be a more of a private um, um, activity. But you know, Mount Mount Smart needs a lot of work done to it. I understand because mm. it's been there for a long time. It wasn't it was built for the the um, Commonwealth Games? The Commonwealth Games, yeah. Yeah, so it's been there for for a long time, and it needs a lot of really uh, major work done on it to bring it up to scratch. So that's one stadium that we've got. Eden Park's the other, which uh, you know it's not it's never getting crowds to its capacity from for rugby um, matches at these days. But it, so they are really concentrating on the on the concerts out there, and uh, oh, all the best to them if they can do it. Yeah. They just need um, Helen Clark to die, and then they'll have all the problems with all the protests stop. She seems to be the architect of all of those. Well, there's there's other people out there as well, though. But I think they may have been worn down to some extent. They, I mean, they got their consent to have concerts, which is a, a, a breakthrough for Eden Park. Mm. Um, yeah, and yeah. So I, I would support them if they can make it work with a, a, and do it lawfully you know, with a resource consent, which is what they've got now. I mean, I guess they've got to make the best of what they've got. They've got a stadium. What can we use stadiums for? Well, they're good for football matches. They're good for concerts. They're good for, you know, events with large numbers. But Eden Park isn't exactly a, a prime location for, uh, no. you know, with, with ready parking that's available, unlike, you know, the stadium at Albany. You know, that's that's a much more conducive stadium for large concerts, et cetera. Yeah, well, it, it, it just seems that they haven't had the opportunities at Albany. And, um, you know, when you look at um, the stadium, at Waikato Stadium in Hamilton, mm. that was kind of modelled. They came to Auckland when I was the mayor and, and looked at North Harbour because they wanted a similar stadium in, in Hamilton. And, uh, you know, they've been very successful. And, and when you see the crowds that turn up there for mm. rugby games, um, they're on. They're on, they've obviously got a better way of doing it there than we've got in Auckland because rugby just can't get the crowds along at the moment. Yeah, well, they may, maybe that's because they've what I call pussified it. They've made it for soft. You know, it's all soft people. You're not allowed to have, you know, strong tackles and that anymore. And you've got all the referees jumping in and the, you know, the the video refs stopping the game and it's. It's not exactly fun to watch rugby anymore. Yeah, except yeah, except Hamilton and um, Christchurch, Dunedin, they get they reasonable right. crowds. Yeah, yeah. Mind you, you could argue there's nothing else to do in Hamilton or Christchurch at night. <laughs> well, it's also getting getting to Eden Park is not the easiest, is it? No. Uh, yeah, it's not not easy in Auckland at the moment. Yeah, there's been a few problems in relation to transport, although. I think Auckland Transport have made major improvements here. I think they've got a long way to go. I mean, I live in Takapuna now, and the carnage that happens around here as a result of Auckland Transport, you know, with uh, the half-million-dollar pedestrian crossings, the 30-kilometre-an-hour zones, the ripping up of Hurstmere Road to put in a cycleway, 
uh, all of this nonsense, and it's just killed off, uh, you know, all of these business areas around here, and and you know your enjoyment of life because it's being sucked out of you by road cones and you know all of these extra things that are happening on the road all around you. It, it, and there's no evidence to support that they're stopping anything untoward anyway. Yeah, but but Cam, I mean, I'm, I represent. You on the Devonport tag, we're the local board. Um, uh, we, um, you know, I don't think Takapuna and, and, and this area is too bad, and it's, it's always an area that people wish to come to and and um, put down their roots. I mean, it's, uh, I, th- I think it's 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 reasonable, and you know, in, in Auckland Council um, studies they do or uh, surveys. It always comes out pretty high up on the list of where people are reasonably satisfied with the way mm. things go on here. So, um, you know, I agree, and it gets up my nose, that cycle lane through Esme Road and Takapuna. Um, and you wouldn't believe it, but the, when I was I was on the board a few years ago, that came up, Auckland Transport brought it to us, and we voted against having that cycle lane through Takapuna. And I think um, it's it's been a major um, negative factor in Hurstmere Road because who wants to go to Hurstmere Road and you go to walk across the road and you don't look to your right to, if, as to whether there's any cyclists coming. Next thing, a cyclist right on top of you. So no, and that and happens. I have to stop you there, George. There's never a cyclist on that. So you're perfectly oh. safe to walk across the road. It's, you know, you're never, you're never going to be in danger of being hit by a cyclist you know, in, in a month of Sundays. No, you come down. I'll come down to Leaf and Loaf one day and to have a talk to the guy there and have a cup of tea. Or <laughs> cup of tea. And I think I think um, you'd hear that that they do come through there, but he also gets guys on electric scooters and and even yeah. motorbikes go through. So it's 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 not good for um, for people that are down there shopping with their kids, and all of a sudden you got a bike down on you coming down on you. Yeah. But let's talk about um, Takapuna or, or the North Shore Ward. What yeah. is it with the voters in North Shore Ward that they keep ret- um, retaining Chris Darby and Richard Hills, a couple of lefty wombles who want to spend moonbeams on cycleways and anything else that's so remotely green or womble-like, and they keep getting voted in? Uh, it's it staggers me that someone like you can't actually get across the line. Yeah, when you used to be the mayor in North Shore, is is well, that... I did get I did get it across the line to start with in the first mm. two two terms. I beat Derby in the first um, election in two thousand and ten. I mm. actually topped the poll in that in that election, um, and there was quite a raft of good candidates. But yeah, I agree, and I think it. I get, I put it down to the fact that. They've got name recognition. Um, people don't care too much about voting in local government elections, and you get, but you get a lot of people um, who are of their persuasion voting, and that's how they they get a reasonable I mean, R- good Richard number Hills, of votes. Richard Hills is a Labour Party member, and he and his signs that he puts up around here during the election are always blue. Same with Chris Darby, always. Yeah. Always blue. They're dishonest, and they're hoodwinking the people into thinking that they're, you know, that are conservatives. Where in actual fact, they're complete lefty wombles. 
And and they're as much part of the problem in the city with expenditure as anybody else because they're always on the side of these big spending projects. You know, Derby well, and Hills were pushing for that cycle bridge across the harbour, you know, for years. Yeah, 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 I agree with you there. But they they are um they've got great name recognition. Mm. Um they've been there for a while, um, and they're pretty hard campaigners. Um, as you say, they use um an, an off blue colour for their signs. Um they they actually are very clever at um, corralling the um, you know the social media um, mm. in the right places. They're on the Herald website um, with their stuff, and and I think they're probably at, that because they've done it for the first for the last three years together, and they've been successful. Um, yeah. I think that they it's that name recognition is their biggest factor that gives them a an edge over other people. But with both. Um, North Shore and the Northcote Ward uh, in national hands, you would think that somebody from the right, centre-right, would be able to crack it as opposed to what we've had in the last number of elections here. Well, that's a perennial problem that I've always had a beef with, with the National Party, uh, not involving themselves in local body elections and allowing all of these disparate groups to form all around the place um, rather than having yeah, the Labour Party uh, has their candidates, the Green Party has their candidates. Um, sometimes they call it city vision, but you're under no illusions as to what they are. And yet citizens and ratepayers or whatever they call themselves now never seem to get their act together and seem to be still stuck in the old pre-2010 uh, you know, city boundaries of Auckland and don't uh, get a cohesive ticket across the entire city, and I think that would be, that would solve part of that problem. But I think somebody in, needs to grab the president of the national party and and the board and start banging some heads together because they just well, seem un, unwilling to to involve themselves in any sort of political campaigning in a coherent manner across the city. But you take yeah okay you take the the two wards north of the Harbour Bridge. I mean, Sayers and Rodney, he's he's home and hose. He's done yep. very well up there keeping keeping that seat. Yep. Walker and Watson in I don't think they're aligned with centre right. And then you've got these other two here. I mean, but centre right have put up people against Wayne Walker and John Watson. They didn't do any good. And the same happened here. So yeah, I think it probably is going to take the National Party to do what the Labour Party do and align themselves with the local, like City Vision is aligned to the Labour Party yeah. and the Green Party. They yeah. do very well. And, and I think something over here has to happen. And it's it's long overdue, but no, no, the National Party don't seem to want to get involved. Yeah. No, I mean, John Watson and Wayne Walker have become conservatives, which is kind of interesting. If you look at their history, they're kind of like green type guys, but um, have become fiscally conservative and they're often against some of these big spending projects that you see in the voting uh, of the councillors. Um, they're more aligned with Morris Williamson and Sharon Stewart and people like that uh, than they are opposed to um, you know, what those guys subscribe to. So, I mean, I think I there's a little bit of cohesiveness there, but 
the one that's the the head scratcher for me is you know Richard Hills and Chris Darby constantly getting elected in in round Takapuna North Shore. Just uh, it just I just can't understand it. And you're right, it's it's to do with name recognition and that. But goodness me, somebody needs to do something about it. But those guys have. They, Wayne Wayne Brown. I mean, I don't know what Wayne's politics are. Wayne Walker. No, Wayne Brown, the mayor. Oh yeah, yep. And he he's taken Richard Hill and given him uh, at one of his all of council committees, um, and he's got a pretty big job that he that they all say he's doing a great job now. Uh, and then you got Chris Darby. He's just appointed him to Auckland Transport. So now he's um, exactly the worst person to appoint Auckland Transport. Yeah, look, I I don't disagree with you on that, <laughs> but um, I don't want to get into the I don't want to get into the personalities of these things. No, you but, don't, yeah. but I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, so yeah, I, look, it it seems to me that Auckland Council has terrible issues, not just budget wise, but a legacy of not actually delivering what the Royal Commission uh, envisaged or indeed the politicians that promised us these amazing things. And I don't know if there's any solution to fixing that other than maybe just splitting the two, the, the, the city in two. I don't know. But what, is, well, what we've got now isn't working. Well, what they were trying to do was to join Denport Takapuna up with Kaipanaki, but they – they, I don't know if they're pushing ahead with that at this stage. Maybe for the next election, but uh, and making it one one board, and they'd probably go to other boards and do the same thing. But um, that's not going to get you very far, really. Uh, it, it, as far as the centre right are concerned, you, you mentioned Sharon Stewart and Morris Williamson out there, Daniel Newman in Manurewa. Yep. Um, um, there's not a lot of other there's, there's not a lot of others. Dersley, I don't know where she stands on some things. She's CNR, but um, you know, she's she's really um, the deputy mayor now, and she's pretty uh, much a supporter of the mayor. But I never know. I couldn't tell you where he stands either. So it's it's very difficult um, um, going right across Auckland to to find where CNR just haven't cut the mustard really unfortunately no and and that's a, a serious you know systemic issue that exists within the center right in in Auckland that I mean Morris Morris Williamson and and Sharon Stewart they stayed as independents yeah. um, maybe that's what we should have done on the shore but anyway we didn't and but but um camp to make a do a successful um campaign and I probably won't do it again but You've got to um, you've got to work very hard at it. You've got to you know this business of door knocking. It is something which you've got to be doing. You've got to just do it and grin and grin and bear it and get the get people to say they'll support you. If you don't do that, sending out brochures and and just putting your name up ain't going to be enough. No. So that's it's it's really where the whole thing starts and finishes. Yeah. But see, that's where you know people like yourself who came up, you know, you've actually worked in a real job. <laughs> you know, you used to yeah. be a cop. You know, you yeah. know what knocking yeah. on doors is all about. <laughs> um, uh, we seem to be, you know, we seem to have lost 
the ordinary person standing for council. Is that, you know, maybe that's the reason why we've got these career politicians that never seem to give us any solutions because they haven't actually worked in the real world. And and also I think that the offices of council, you know, look upon the elected representatives as just temporary, they'll be here for, for the three years and a lot of them will be gone, so don't worry about them too much. And you don't get these days the colourful characters who do their own thing and stand up against the what they're told as far as how they've got to do this and do that. I mean, you'd find it very difficult to uh, be given your writing instructions. Mm-hmm. And don't forget these days, if you if you do transgress the rules or you get you, you get yourself nose out of joint, you'll end up with a code of conduct complaint against you. And that can be, you know, you say, well, so what? But <laughs> it's a black mark against you because everybody will know and they'll just put it around and you've got to try and get yourself out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I've suffered that. And uh, it's it's not very pleasant to uh, have to get you uh, to try and find a way of getting through it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we, I think we need more people like you, um, George, on the council or certainly on the local boards, people who actually know their ass from their elbow, to, to use a colloquial term. Um, because, you know, these career politicians aren't doing anything for us and uh, they're making things worse. And, and you know, we've just outlined today for the listeners huge boondoggles that have cost millions and millions of dollars and the people responsible for those things sailed off into the distance and there's no accountability because they're gone. Well, it's interesting. I was watching television the other night and, uh, Oh, they were talking about the um, homosexual law reform bill and Norman Jones. Remember Norman Jones? Yeah. Remember Cargill? Yeah. And he got up and ripped into women audiences saying what he thought about the um, Fran Wiles um, bill that she had before Parliament. He lost, of course, but um, that he, he, he stood his ground. And you need people that are prepared to put themselves on the line and um, and make a stand on things. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it would help too if councillors knew that which end of a shovel to hold. You know, that's the problem is that they've never actually been on the tools. They've never actually done anything with their hands. They've never actually run businesses. They've just sort of been consultants and then become politicians and now they're you know inflicting rates increases on us all. I don't yeah. know what the solution is, but maybe we need to just go back to the basics and have, you know, good, honest um, people who are not making this a career and are treating it as actually, you know, community service. Maybe yeah, that's, the, think, maybe that's I, the issue. I think you're probably right there, but finding those people is a difficulty. And yeah. um, I'm, I'm working with a guy on the local board that we stood stood together and got elected, and uh, he, he's got his own business, so he, he has to put his business activities aside to come to meetings. Yeah. But... Um, Man, he he puts a different perspective on issues because he's got that business way of thinking, yeah. and you know can say, well, what's the what's the benefit cost ratio here? You know, we haven't done it. What what, what are we going to get out of this for putting this money in? And we we've only got a very limited amount of money. We can't do it, and because um, elected representatives are always wanting to please people, and um, 
and that's, that's actually one of the interesting things when you get elected. When I got elected first as the mayor of North Shore City, I used to hate offending people. But eventually you learn that you can't please everybody. And yeah. you can. You, there's going to be a lot of people you just have to, you know, say, well, I'm not going to help you. I'm sorry, I can't help you. Your, your idea is not the way I'm thinking on this. And, uh, you know, when people... People like you when you treat them harshly quite quite often because you're you're honest with them and you tell them as it is. And I always think that that's one of the the realities of being a politician that you have to learn learn it the hard way and you'll get there in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you have to learn to say no to people and and be strong about it. Um, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. But we don't seem to have anybody who is. Doing that, I mean, how on earth does Auckland Transport justify a half a million dollars for a pedestrian crossing? I mean, there's two of them within 50 metres of each other in Takapuna, one on Hurstmere Road and one on Anzac Street, They're those raised ones. half That's a million dollars in the space of, you know, 50-odd metres. Yeah. Uh, why didn't anybody say, no, that's stupid? It's the same like with your with the Hurstmere Road cycleway, right? You yeah, all said yeah. everybody said no, but there it is. And and well, this is this is what yeah. staggers me is that who asked for these things? Because it wasn't me. Well, they claim that it's it's going to stop deaths on the roads because they say that people, if you hit by a car and the car's only doing 30k. Um, the chances of you you dying as a result of that collision are very limited. That's what, that's but, but their theory. Abs- but this is absurd. I mean, why don't they then say, "All right, then let's make everybody drive around at twenty kilometres an hour, and let's have a guy run in front with a <laughs> with a little flag warning you that the car's coming," because that's the level of absurdity that we're at now. Well, we are. It, it is it is something which these people have got ingrained into their psyche, and there's no way that they're going to change. And I think that Simeon Brown, the new Minister of Transport, he's going to have a huge uh, imposition placed on him, and he, he's got to try and make it work. And I see him talking about the um, Auckland petrol tax the other day, mm. and he and it's the, the media kind of sense that he hasn't made a decision as to when it's going to be withdrawn. But there's a hang of a lot of people that are looking at him to do it because People are hurting, but it's just a symbolic kind of um, gesture. If get rid of yeah. that ten cents plus GST, and um, it'll show that the government's doing something to try and help us in this time of you know high cost of living. Well, so, I mean, the, the reason that was put on was to fund the rail expansion, which was now being cancelled. So there's no actual rationale for that petrol tax to be there now it needs to go and it was a, a promise that they delivered and he needs to to um actually get on with it yeah well i don't know what what the time frame is going to be but it didn't sound as if it was going to be tomorrow um it's, it's just... you know what politicians are like george they're addicted yep. to taxation <laughs> once it's on it's very hard to take off that's what dick quacks used to always say once you put on a temporary tax it's never going to go no exactly <laughs> Yeah, On that note, yeah. George, look, we've had a lovely chat and um, I don't know if we've solved any problems, but we've certainly rattled a few cages. And, okay, uh, Ken. Thank you for your time and well, thank you for coming on The Crunch. Okay, all the best, Ken. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
Well, that certainly was interesting. George thinks that many of the problems in Auckland Council can be sheeted home to large white elephant projects instigated by Len Brown, namely the Central Rail Loop, which is going to cost Aucklanders $220 million a year to operate. We are sorely missing people like George Wood at council level. Don't forget to send comments on George's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now it's time for Cam's Buddies. This week we'll find out what they think about the Maori Party protests and their grandstanding over swearing an oath to the king. My producer has them all lined up and ready to go, so let's hear what Cam's Buddies have to say about Te Party Maori grandstanding. Good afternoon, Paul. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Good afternoon, Cam. How are you going today? Yeah, good. Um, much better than last week, that's for sure. Very good. You're looking better too. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, body of a finely tuned athlete and all that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this week I thought we'd I'd ask the question about what you thought about the shenanigans of the Maori Party or Te Party Maori as they like to call themselves these days and their little protest about the government and then their little um, swearing in ceremony on Tuesday where they appear to insult King Charles in taking the oath. I thought it was very interesting that um, if you want to take the politicians' pay, you have to take the oath. So <laughs> what they do is they put up all the malarkey about, oh, no, we're going to say to the treaty or to Nakifatur um, or to our whanau. But in the end, they take the oath because they want the money. And I always think that's pretty funny stuff. And then um, Willie Jackson comes in and says, oh, why don't you say it in Maori to Winston and all the sort of thing. Winston doesn't humour him, just smiles at him and thinks you're an idiot. And um, he does what he wants to do because, of course, he's in government. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, they did all this grandstanding, uh, organised what what is a rather pathetic um, protest, really, when you consider the amount of people that were out protesting you know, the mandates and the groundswell stuff, the Maori Party didn't seem to be able to organise that very many people to hold up the motorway system at all. And then their grandstanding is is exactly that. It's just grandstanding, wearing silly hats and treating the parliament with disrespect. But ultimately, they, they've got to swear the, the oath because they don't get paid otherwise. 
Yes, it's amazing what the golden rule does do. And uh, when people have the golden rule, in effect, he with the gold makes the rule, then that's the new golden rule, of course. Then these folk often um, fall into line because it's all about the money that they want. And they're saying, oh, the young people care. If you go and interview 100 young people on the street and ask them about this, they'd all say, eh, what? They wouldn't even know what it's about because they don't care. They would more likely say we support Palestine, especially if we're gay, because gays for Palestine is a really good thing, That so they think. Or they think that um, we, we, we have the right to democracy so we can go and say silly things <laughs> um, about folk. It's the only people that have a democracy over there, of course, is Israel and not the Palestines. And I look and I'm thinking that the young people seem to be deluded by the media often. Mm. And I think um, our, our Maori folk here, um, they got more Maori in Parliament than ever before so that they've got double the amount of Maori politicians as they have um, Maori in the populace. And they're saying, oh, this is a big backward step for Maori. Um, hello. Um, looks like it's the most forward step that we've ever seen. And when we um, stop fooling about with two governments or whatever they're thinking about, and New Zealanders all get on with each other and we all try and make the country great, we get on a whole lot better and everybody has a nice time. And as for these people saying, oh, we're not going to do that, and they don't like the fact that the um, Maori smoke more than um, the rest of the country, so the um, taking the no smoking as a generation away affects Maori. They're just looking for something to be aggrieved by. There's, there's no reality in this. I mean, Maori have the same opportunities not to buy cigarettes as the rest of the populace. And if their relatives smoke and they can see them all croaking with emphysema, they get a, a close-up eye view of why it's not really a very good idea. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Is that there can't be any child that goes to school these days that doesn't know that smoking is bad for you. And yet we seem to have this abiding belief that the government will protect us from our own stupidity. And, and you know, I, I mean, I only smoke cigars and I only do that for health reasons, but I don't smoke cigarettes uh, because it's stupid. And um, and I mm. see see the diseases that come from that, plus the increased taxes that you have to pay for the privilege of smoking cigarettes is a tax on stupidity. Well, I think if you are stupid and you get taxed for it, I think that that's sometimes an okay thing. Um, I've smoked in the past. I thought um, better of it and I quit smoking and I feel a whole lot better for having done so. But I mean, I quit smoking, I think, 20 years ago. And um, from time to time, I still look and I'm thinking I wouldn't mind a puff. So it's absolutely definitely addictive stuff. But uh, I'm looking thinking, no, nah, that's not for me. I don't need to worry about that. And I don't want to set an example to any young people that actually look at me and think somehow I'm a role model. And um, mm. But back to the question you asked, I think it's... Um, if you, if you say which treaty, different treaties, and the one that they're talking about, which is the the, the Maori version of the treaty, mm. there's a lot less in there for them. The, the translations are quite different. So um, in one, it talks about sovereignty being ceded, and in the other, it doesn't, and all these sorts of things. And, and if you were to ask the average person, even the people, in, I think, in the Maori party, and until they've been schooled up on the, uh, about how unfair it is, they never thought it was unfair. 
because they used the electoral system, got themselves voted in, and uh, they're now in Parliament getting more money than they've ever had in their lives. And you look and you think, well, can't be all bad. Well, I mean, that's the thing. You know, Debbie Nariwa Packer was on on Tuesday morning on breakfast TV with Shane Jones and insulting him as as old and irrelevant and and then sitting there saying that the Maori uh, that the New Zealand First Party and the ACT Party don't represent Maori. Um, they look they only got six percent and eight percent. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, hang on, why isn't the the interviewer saying, well, hang on, you only got three percent. So how can you <laughs> how can you claim to have a mandate for Maori, which is seventeen percent of the population, when you only got three percent of them to vote for you? And whilst you're insulting the ACT Party and the New Zealand First Party, their leaders are Maori. <laughs> and they're in government. Who would have thought? That's the thing. And they're in government making decisions. They're in government making decisions, not shouting from the outside. And that's the other thing. If you look at the cabinet, 20 members of the cabinet and a third of them are Maori. It's the biggest number ever yes. of Maori cabinet ministers. And these clowns are protesting and saying this is a racist government and uh, and they don't represent Maori. Well, Winston Peters would have something to say about that, I'm sure. So would David Seymour. Well, also, it's not a representative government when twice the number of um, cabinet positions are held by Maori than it, they represent in the population. But but no Europeans complaining about it. No Asian no. is complaining about it. Um, our Pacifica people aren't complaining about it. People are saying, um, let's get on and do some stuff. So so 3% of the vote now think that they can call us and tell us who's complaining about what um, they don't re- represent their people well, I don't believe. And most Māori that you speak to want to have a good feed, a good hard day's work, a game of rugby, and a few laughs, maybe yep. a song or two on, on the guitar. Now, that might sound very stereotypical, but I've employed many Māori who are the loveliest people, having jokes, laughing, joking around. It's all good. And I've also had businesses where the Māori were the... And I've worked for them. They were the bosses. All still good. And so I'm thinking, this is, to me, how commercial things happen, not by the government saying, oh, we'll, we'll hold you back here and we'll lift these people up because they, they've got a harder, harder road to hoe. At the end of the day, life's tough, work hard, succeed. Moan about how everybody's done you wrong and fail. If you keep getting told that you, you're hopeless and you need the government to look after you, you'll be hopeless, won't you? And you may even need the government to look after you. <laughs> which is which is <laughs> what they want. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when the government says that they can be your daddy um, and then you get to do everything that you're told, whereas when with right-leaning, centre-right-leaning governments, when they say, get out there and give it a go, work hard and you'll be rewarded and successful, that's what we do. And, we have, and, and then all sorts of things go well for all sorts of people. That's right. We need to get back to that. Thank you so much for your call, Paul, and we'll talk next week. All good. Take care. Bye for now. Welcome to Cam's Buddies, Jack. Hi, Cam. How are you? Fantastic. This week, better than last week, that's for sure. Excellent. So this week I've got a bit of a, a curly question. No doubt you're going to give me your curmudgeonly um, opinion on that. But what do you think about the performance of Te Party Māori or the Māori Party with them organising a protest and then 
um, you know, performing like trained seals in Parliament, um, pretending they're not going to swear the oath, and then eventually having to swear an oath um, to the king, even though they said they wouldn't do it. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think um, basically, I think it's just a bit of a laugh, except it's not, of course. But they obviously have never done a salesmanship course. If you want to actually get someone to be sympathetic to your cause, you don't go pissing them off. And that's mm. what they've effectively done with a hell of a lot of people today. As for painted face, trilby wearing, glassing, glasses wearing, whatever his name is, in Parliament. Yeah. What has he ever done? I was trying to think, um, you know everything, Cameron. What has he actually done? How long has he been in Parliament? And what has he actually achieved? Well, I think what he's achieved is uh, expanding his girth, uh, supping at the trough. Um, a quick research into him says that he's done three-fifths of five-eighths of stuff all. And he's been in Parliament. He's been in Parliament uh, where he stood for the Labour Party originally in 2014. Then he joined the Maori Party and then was elected in 2020. And then basically he's done nothing since and will continue to do nothing. Um, he's passed a couple of, or had a couple of, uh, you know, uh, things to say about abortion and conversion therapy and stuff like that, but not much really um, in anything that he's done before entering parliament or after. That's what I thought. Um, I see that um, none of them were going to uh, swear an oath of allegiance to the king until someone reminded them unless they did that, they couldn't enter parliament and therefore they wouldn't get paid. The moment they heard of not getting paid, they quickly changed their mind, which is so funny. Well, that's the thing. I mean, mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It was all grandstanding. They were going to have to swear the oath in any case because it's a legal requirement. And they grandstand and, and, you know, try and rewrite it and insult the king by calling him a scab and by using Maori and thinking that they're all a bit clever. But the reality is, is that the treaty that they swore allegiance to in their pretend allegiance, the crown was a party to anyway. So they're swearing allegiance to a ratty old document that was found on a shelf um, falling to pieces that the crown is a party to. So it's hilarious. Uh, really, when you think about it. It's, it is hilarious. And what were all those thousands? I, I assume it was thousands of people protesting. Why weren't they at work? No, it'd be has, hundreds. Has the it, country it, lost productivity? I don't think there was much of a protest at all. I mean, Voices for Freedom uh, had organized, and Groundswell have organised much bigger protests. So, you know, it doesn't say much for the organisation power of, of Te Party Maori. But then, you know, you look at it, Debbie Nariwa Packer, the co-leader, she was on breakfast television on Tuesday morning, uh, slamming the ACT Party and New Zealand First for only getting 6 and 8%. And it didn't ever enter her brain, you know, that actually that, that was more than double what she got for her party, which is 3%. Yes, I heard that. I, la- I laughed at that too. <laughs> but, but, you know, no one pulls them <laughs> Look, up and says, hang so on. Bizarre. You just have you just. You just have to think of it as a joke. You seriously do. You cannot take it seriously. Except, you know, one of our colleagues, Stephen, couldn't make our meeting this morning because the motorway was blocked. Yeah. That peeved me. Yeah, I mean, it's just ridiculous. The motorway was blocked. 
presumably by the colonialist motor vehicles that they were using um, as they're protesting colonialism. You know, it's it's insane. Yeah, why weren't they on horses? Or, or did they actually have horses in 1840? No. Only the horses they stole off the British. Oh, of course. Well, that's well, where the that's where know, the Kaimanawa horses come from, actually. You know, the famous Kaimanawa horses, a little bit of interesting history. There was a bunch of British soldiers, you know, and as you head up the um uh the Napier Taupo Highway, and you you go up that big long hill and and at the top of the hill there's a bit of bush there and there's a an an ancient site or not you know, an old site from the eighteen forties. There was a group of British soldiers that were ambushed there by Takuti's um, lot, and all their horses escaped into the into the Kaimanawas, and that's where they come from. Yes, well, I was about to say that I actually had two relatives killed by Murray, and one of them was in that party you were talking about, yeah, and the other one was much more recent, which kind of like hardens me a little bit against their attitudes. I wish they'd actually spend more time looking after their children and not murdering them on a daily basis. Well, you know, that's a, a debatable point, obviously, that they would um, oppose, but they don't march in the streets for the young kids that are being bashed to death, do they? Way back um, when I had the own, onerous job of um, doing photographs for Her Majesty's New Zealand Police, uh, we did all autopsy photos. And I tell you what, every single... Um, child that was killed were married. There wasn't one that wasn't. And the atrocious things that were done to them, and I believe it's just the same today. Why don't they concentrate on fixing that up? Well, chance would be a fine thing. They've got more important things to worry about. Really? Yeah, like oaths Mm. and things like that. Anyway, Jack, thank you for your comments. Um, Curmudgeonly as usual, but on point. And I look forward to talking to you next week. See you, Cam. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Cam's Buddies, Marcus. How are you this week? Good, buddy. I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Keeping out of trouble this week? Yeah, I, I thought I'd come down to uh, Tauranga to see what was happening down here with regards to um, all the protests that were supposed to happen today. In Tauranga? You're in Tauranga? Yeah, yeah. I came down to visit the old folks, you know. Got to stand their will. That's a little bit out of out of the way from your um, westy kicking ground, stomping ground, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm keeping it nice and quiet down here because I might get a bit scared if I know there's a westy in there in there. <laughs> anyway, this week's topic <laughs> is um, what do you think about the shenanigans of the Maori Party, their protests on Tuesday, and their grandstanding in Parliament over the swearing of oaths? No, I think you pretty well much. Uh, sums it up with that. It's just shenanigans. I mean, they're trying their hardest to be relevant. Um, I say good on them. Go protest. I'm all for protests. You can do all that. It pisses people off, and um, and they and they either agree with you or don't agree with you. And I mean, how many how many percentage did the Maori Party get this um, this last just, election? Two percent was it? So just a bit over three percent. Yeah, three percent, which is more than they deserve, quite frankly. But I mean, hey. I'm all for protests, and um, we all know what it's like when people, the general population, um, slams protesters for being, you know, idiots and not not allowing people to go to work and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, yeah, sure, they could have done it probably a bit better as far as um, allowing people to go past and not stopping in the middle of the roads and that. But, hey, at the end of the day, 
they um, felt like they achieved something. So whatever, good on them. Mm. I mean, clearly I don't agree with them. As far as the shenanigans and, and, and parliament, they're just trying to be relevant there. I mean, they're separatists and they're racists and, and they're everything that we don't want New Zealand to be. Um, and I, I say let them talk and let them let them show themselves for who they are. I mean, ultimately, they're not in government. I mean, um, you know, I mentioned to a couple of the other buddies that Debbie Nariwa Packer was um, moaning about how uh, New Zealand First and Act don't represent um, very much of the population, they're a very tiny percentage. Of course, New Zealand First got double what the Maori Party got and the ACT Party got more than double what they got. But but it was uh, just said, matter-of-factly, not challenged by anybody in the media, that the Maori Party got just 3% of the vote. Uh, Maori make up 17% of the electorate. So and, 30, and 35% of the um of the cabinet. And 35% of cabinet. I mean, they're, they're sitting there saying this is a racist government, but all the evidence suggests otherwise, that they're not racist at all, that we've got more Maori in cabinet than we've ever had before, even under the incredibly woke Labour Party. And well, this, this is just a hangover. This is a hangover from Labour days where they just say stuff and then the media accepts it as gospel and they just blurt on about all this rubbish and 100,000 homes and that. And Māori parties say New Zealand first and act uh, racist, and that's it. That's all they have to do. They don't have to prove that. They don't have to pull any evidence out. In fact, the evidence, again, those pesky, pesky facts, they're the opposite. They want all New Zealanders to be equal. I mean, that's exactly the opposite to being racist. It's literally not racist. And and when you talk about one rule for somebody and one rule for somebody else, that's an advantage to one group of people. And if that group of people happens to be a race, that's by definition racist. So I don't, I mean, the facts aren't on their side. So, I mean, I, I say just let them keep talking and hopefully the media gets slammed by people like Winston Peters and they pull them to account and say, actually, let's talk about what the word racist means and let's let's nail it down and let's let's get you, the media, to tell me exactly what policy in my party is racist. They won't be able to do it because there isn't. Well, that's the thing. The, the, the Maori Party seems to want to shut down debate and conversation and uh, discussion over what is actually meant by the principles of the treaty. Because there are no principles in the treaty. There's three articles. There's no principles. Uh, mm-hmm. and, yet, and yet we're being told that these that they want to fight this government because their understanding of the treaty is the right understanding and the Maori that are in the government now are the wrong sort of Maori and therefore we should ignore what the voters have actually delivered and do what they want. Well, the woke left never ever want to talk about facts. You know, they don't want to talk about what the what the actual meaning or what the intention of the, the treaty is, because in their opinion, in today's world, this is the way it is. And so, when they die off and the next generation comes in, they'll have a different opinion about what the treaty means to them. When in fact, the treaty was derived at a time when things were much different than today, and the Maori and the Pākehā all got together and said, okay, everybody's equal under the law of not King, uh, whatever Queen his Victoria. name is, Charles. Yep. Yeah, Queen Victoria. 
Um, everyone's equal under the eyes of her, and we've all got a chance to do well in this country we're going to call New Zealand. That was that was what it was intended for, you know. And yeah. nowadays, it seems that you can have some sort of um, interpretation every single generation along the line. So, I mean, this is just going to ca- carry on forever. And that's what I'm saying. The, wo- the woke left, or the woke people don't, I hate that word woke, actually, but I'll use it anyway. Those people, the left, the crazy loony left, don't want to talk about the facts because if you nail them down to the facts, then they'll just revert to name-calling, which they do in this case call you racist, or and they'll um, completely shut you off as somebody they don't want to li- listen to sort of thing. So, I mean, I think it's bang on right what, what um, uh, ACT and, and what St. Peter's is doing. They're, they're looking at it going, well, hang on, let's, let's put a final nail on this. And it's been tried before, so it'll be, be very interesting how they get on. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's, there's not much really you can say because every, every generation is going to change your opinion. It's, you know, it's like anything. You, you can, yeah, go on all, all night about what you think something is and someone else will have a different opinion to it, and then later on in life that opinion changes. It's like pronunciation of Māori language. I mean, now it's not whangarei, it's whangarei. And that, that changes every five years, it seems. It's like no one knows how to call these names. Yeah. So, Who's right? Who's wrong? It was Wangarei when I was a kid. Yeah. And Tauranga. Yeah, Tauranga. Not Tauranga. No, it's Tupo or something like that now, down in Taupo. Yeah. I mean, it, like I say, it's just, it's different opinions. They come out with this and they say, well, this is a quick way of doing it. So everyone brings it on board and they do that. Then the next generation comes along and says, no, that's not what the treaty meant. Look. We've been hard done by. We need to get some more money from the government. We hate. Yep. And so the guys, the guys. Um, I mean, they should be shamed. Uh, I mean, I'm not much of a monarchist. It's, uh, I'm monarchist. Is that a real word? I'm not much of a um, monarchy fan with regards to the king and queen and all that sort of carry on. I don't. I'm not adverse to being a republic. Although I don't think we're we're strong enough to be a republic because we haven't got any any sort of place in the world where we can stand on our own two feet. We rely too much on other countries. However, I mean, if you're going to go into Parliament, we're under the, the governance of King... Uh, what's his name? Charles. Charles. King yeah. Charles. So therefore, we have to, we have to, you know, just come to his rule. And so that part of the tradition is you have to do that. And if you're not going to do that, then you can bugger off. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing, isn't it? They don't want to play, but they have to play. And... Uh, yeah. You know, they can do all of their grandstanding all they like, but at the end of the day, they had to swear the oath, otherwise they wouldn't get paid or they couldn't be an MP, so they decided to take the money. They didn't have any principles. Exactly right. Money trumps trumps their principles, bang on. Where where does cowboy hats come into the the fold in the history of Māori as well, I'd like to know. Oh, no, he didn't wear a cowboy hat today. He had some other sort of flax thing on his head. It looked like a clown wig, actually. Yeah, I, I I did see that. And there was another guy who looked, mean, like, looked like he was out of a, um, you know, a Crash Bandicoot PlayStation game. <laughs> Mario Brothers music in the background. <laughs> uh, never mind. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all a big sideshow, mate. It's all just a big game, and 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 the media is loving it because they got something to sort of hang their hat on. I mean, the protests today, I think. I mean, they they got their word out there, and the media's reporting on it. I don't know if they achieved anything. They feel like they did. So, what, 300 cars, I think it was, up in Auckland? Yeah, it was 
you know, there's probably more cars. Car- downtown, though, don't yeah, there's probably more cars in uh, the local shopping centre car park than there were at the protest. Yeah, there probably wasn't even 300. I mean, the media probably boosted those numbers up as opposed to what they did with the protests down at um, Wellington where they, they shrunk those numbers and all those protests in Auckland where they said there were 2,000 people and there was like 10,000 plus easily. Yeah, exactly. So who knows? You know, the, never trust the media them. are in on, on it, though, aren't they? The media are in on it, though, yeah, of course. They? Yeah, they they yeah. want they want I mean, all of this um, agitation and um, you know uh, separatism, separatism, threats of violence, all of that sort of. They want all of this because they don't like the results of the election just as much as the Maori Party doesn't like the results of the election. I reckon Winston should come out and call the Te Party Maori Party the River of Filth. That'd be awesome. <laughs> He's got far too much <laughs> gravitas to do that. I'm sure he does. <laughs> All right, Marcus, I'll let you get back to um, buttering up your parents in Tauranga, yep. and uh, we'll have to catch cool, up when you get back. So, now that I've got this bug out of the way and my black eye is, uh, is started to heal, uh, it'll be time for, right. a smoke. Get, time for a smoke on the boat. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you another one, mate, in the other one. Even that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we, maybe I should bring Probably. all the recording equipment and do a cams buddies from the boat. There you go. There you go. There'll be a bit of swearing in the background if we sail in. Oh, shit, here comes something. <laughs> exactly. All right, buddy. Thank you <laughs> for, for your call, and we'll talk next week. All right, mate. Catch you later. Welcome to cams buddies, Jimmy. Cameron, how are you this week? Oh, fantastic. Did you get disrupted on, on Tuesday morning? No, of course not. I didn't get disrupted on Tuesday morning. I I work gentlemen's hours. Oh, lucky for some. Yeah. I know some people. So what's your topic today? Topic today is precisely that, the disruption on Tuesday, the Maori Party protest, and their carry-on down in Parliament uh, fake swearing on the treaty and then insulting the king as they swore the oath of allegiance, what your thoughts are on those? I thought that the protest was just a big bunch of unhappy socialists who have lost an election and don't want to accept the result. The parties clearly campaigned on the policies they're implementing, unlike the previous Labour government who didn't. Mm. And, yeah, they're just a big... It was mostly just, you know, socialists and unemployed people. I mean, honestly. I mean, I guess there's there's one benefit... There was one benefit as you were stuck in traffic behind a bus with my picture on it. <laughs> I know, I keep seeing your fat chops all over the show, mate. It's bloody well, terrible. Yeah, well, never, I, I it's, it's good you're a blogger. You can no longer say that I um, don't take public transport. I'm, I've been on several <laughs> buses. The um, Yeah, no, the, the, look, the, the protest was just not accepting the result of the Democrat. We've just had our election. Like, you can't say that there's any surprises here. And it's really, this this three years is going to probably be quite... Um, Entertaining, I think. Disruptive. But it's just hope that the, none of the current MPs back down from their policy positions they got voted in on. Because, I don't think know, they're going to. I, you know, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure that ACT and New Zealand First actually want the Maori Party to be having protests and marching and saying outrageous racist things um, because it suits their agenda. 
um, that they can stand up against it and say, well, you know, um, we might not be the right sort of Maori, but, you know, at least we're in government. Well, that's one of the funniest things is Seymour and Winston pushing this are literally Maori in Shane Jones. I mean, it's just bizarre. But um, I, I, I think that the problem we have is that the media sympathise with the protesters more than with the government. And so the spin you see on it is much more sympathetic to, you know, the cause. Than there, shouldn't, there shouldn't be any spin on it. It should, it should be just the facts. You know, they shouldn't be sympathetic to the government or the protesters. They should say there was a protest today, 300 people annoyed um, a million commuters, and those are the facts. Oh, look, I agree, but that's just not how it is. And they, they seek clicks and they seek outrage and they seek, you know, and um, so they were all there with their cameras on all the overbridges and they were snapping it up and loving it. And it just causes drama and they get clicks and it just, we literally have to stop clicking on their pages to kill them. It's just metaphorically kill the media business. You know what I mean? It just, it just can't, it's going to damage our democracy because it's right. just literally not the views of the public. But it is appear it's made to appear like it is. Yeah. And and, and that's the thing. I think the government can help with that uh by removing their advertising dollars from spending it with these organizations that spend all of their time attacking them. So this, they should just call in all the heads of departments from the government, you know, departments, sit down with the finance minister and Nicola Willis, and she'd sit there and say, Well, how much money did you spend on advertising on radio? And, and what was it for? And uh, can we knock that on the head? Let's just knock that on the head for six months and see how that goes and take their money off them. I think it would be hilarious. I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to see them do that. That would just be delicious. But is that, like, I haven't seen any sort of policy on that. I think Winston made some noises during the election, but I haven't actually seen any clear policy on you know, advertising spend or you know, shifting budgets, because it's such a problem. Like, that protest today was just basically woke Marxists and activists marry, and and it just pissed everyone off I talked to about it. They're all late to school and late for work and late for appointments. Mm. And if you watch the media, it seems like it was a great thing. How yeah, because they're sticking what, it to the government that they don't like. That's the thing. The media are in on it, and that's what I've said. They're in on it. They actually want this to happen because they want to undermine the government from the very beginning of it. Well, I don't know what to do about that, mate, because that, well, we do know, but there's nothing I can do about it other than not to click there. Stupid. And, and the experts the media go to are literally people, activists. Why don't they go to a few pissed off school mums who, who are late? Why didn't they ring up Cam's buddies? <laughs> we could, or maybe I could rent them Cam's buddies for a bit. Because you guys seem to be far far more sensible than than the than the talking heads that the other media use. I'm, yeah, well, that's true, but they just, I mean, they just seem to go to all the the the, the most leftist on Twitter end up talking on the news. It's just like, well, this is you know, there's just it's just too extreme. They're not talking to the right people, but I guess they just want the activation and the clicks and the yeah. yeah. So I just think that. Protest on Tuesday was just, just insane. Basically, just a pointless loss of public support for the Māori Party amongst the activists. Let's forget, remember that the Māori Party only got three percent of yep three percent the vote. 
seventeen percent of the population are Maori, and they can only get three percent. Yeah, it's just not widely supported. They're a minnow, but but they win seats due to the, you know, the seat situation that they're in. Well, Debbie Nariwa Packer. Debbie Nariwa Packer on tele, breakfast television with Shane Jones on Tuesday morning was attacking ACT in New Zealand it. first, saying, "Well, you don't ha- you don't have very much of the vote, and um, you know you don't represent Maori." And and nobody said, "Hang on a minute, you know, lady, you only got three percent." Yeah, that's half of what New Zealand First got, and it's less than half of what ACT got. So ACT and New Zealand First plus National was a majority of Parliament, so why don't you shut up? Well, I thought that she rebutted Shane by calling him misogynist. That's because she's gotten a decent argument other than saying that he doesn't just doesn't like women, which is insane. Well, that's which just is, typical. They're which is nuts. Misogynist if, or racist. It's completely nuts because if you know who Shane Jones' wife is, you can you know he's not a misogynist because he he'd just get a clip if he was. Cop it. Who is his wife? Dot. You famous person. Oh, no, she's well known in Maori circles, but you know she's not one to take any nonsense, and she wouldn't take any misogynist nonsense from Shane Jones. That's for sure, absolutely for sure. So it's just an insult, <laughs> like yeah, you know, it's like when they say, "Oh, you're a racist," you know, whatever. Yeah, said the racist. The <laughs> they, they don't like your politics. You're a racist. They don't like your, you know, the, your argument. You're a um, misogynist. It's just, it's just getting so boring. And I've said it before. I think even on Ken's but it's going to, they're going to lose the meaning of the word, and people are not going to care. And then when there's real racism. You know, it's just going to mean nothing, and it's it's, it's a bit of kind of sad, really. Well, it's so. like it's like you know we get called conspiracy theorists and cookers and all sorts of nonsense like that. They're just words, you know, and they don't mean anything. They don't signify anything, and that's ultimately where the Maori Party is sitting. They're a three percent party in opposition. We'll never hear from them again inside the parliament. There's nothing that they'll be able to do. They'll get very few questions. Um, because that's how it works, and uh, and the grown-ups will carry on governing the country um, for the better, and and you know it's it's brilliant to see that, and uh, I hope it just continues. Well, that's exactly right, but I hope that they don't use their position to cause big division and end up with protests on motorways and you know causing real strife, and then ends up with you know police there and batons and you know just to, just. It just no one wants it, you know. It just needs to be argued out politically. And if we if we don't start if we stop accepting democracy in the votes, then you know we have got real problems. Yeah. So that's exactly. They right. need to make a good cause, and they got three years time. They need to make a good cause and get voted into power and change the policies if that's what they feel. That shutting down motorways is not the way to win public support. No. But in a way, not. they've shown them true selves, but. It could cause some carnage in the next three years. I see David Seymour got heckled. Oh, I'm sure he doesn't. Won't worry him. But I'm just, sure he doesn't care. You know, imagine if people were the vaccine protest was, you know, heckling MPs. It was all called harassment and misogyny yeah. and blah, 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 you know. So. Total rubbish. Anyway. anyway, Jimmy, thank you for anyway. your comments this week and uh, we'll talk next week. Thanks, Kim. Cheers. See you. My buddies are awesome. They never let me down, and we got a few cold, hard truths there for sure. Tell us who you think is the best of Cam's buddies and why. 
by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Right, now it's time for my favorite part of the show, the feedback and all your commentary, your brickbats, your complaints and your praise. So let's get started straight into it. We've got some feedback uh, from Cam's buddies, which is what we did last week. Hi, Cam. Last night I watched the Netflix three-part series about the exposed Lunar Park fire. It's well worth a watch, and one does really wonder if we have this sort of corruption in New Zealand. Probably. Well-researched and quite sad. Cheers, Annie. Annie, I think you're probably right. There's a, a, a level of corruption that's in New Zealand that we can only imagine and it's only when you're exposed to it do you start to open your eyes. Oh God, hi Cam, we enjoy your show. Thank you for all your work and efforts to inform. I saw this and just wanted to make you aware in case you weren't, and it's a link to an Official Information Act request where somebody's asking for communications between me and the coalition parties. Well, you know, there'll be nothing there because there is no communication. Uh, I'm a journalist and a radio host, and I enjoy doing that. My lobbying days are over. But they say, take care and get better soon. Best wishes from avid listeners. For Cam, Labour is in total denial of defeat. Media are not reading the mood of the nation. They're still attacking the wrong people. Ask National to consider the 1% transaction tax. It would reduce government staff, no more IRD, and it would provide money for their policies. It would give tax breaks. Total Kingsley. Janet says, hi, Cam, agree that splitting Deputy PM is elegant. David Seymour is a very good politician, articulate and clear thinking, but not one I voted for as he seems too young to manage stressful situations. Winston has maturity and experience. Who better to pave the way for Seymour? It's an inspiration, probably did come from desperation. And Anonymous says, Judith Collins wants GE and GM, not good. And I've got a long one here from my good mate, Michael Foxton. Hi, Cam, just listening to your opening remarks on the crunch. As usual, you were right on the mark with the way the media are behaving, but I really didn't expect it to be any different. I'm still waiting for the day Hillary Barry gets what's coming. Anyway, one of your remarks made me think back to you. The first interview RCR did with Winston, and I remember writing in saying, how could anyone not vote for him after that interview? Maybe it was with Paul. And when my comment was read out, there were a few detractors, and even in the local VFF group, I got a bit of stick. I'm so glad I stuck to my guns at the time and even convinced a few to go with Winston, even though they were not sure. I think you got it so right when you reminded us to stick with the one party who had a chance, a masterstroke, but I 
was always a Winston fan, so you didn't have to convince me. One thing I forgot to put in my thoughts last week was for the government to have a Ministry of Works again and maybe get rid of some of the BS departments that we all know are there just to spend money and make up numbers for the woke. I've noticed that there seems to be a move to the right worldwide. Listening to RCR has really woken me up, especially the international news, and I'm getting a better picture of how the tight grip of the WHO, WEF, UN seems to be not as tight as they thought. I heard the Hungarian ambassador being interviewed, and he was amazing, telling us the pitfalls to watch out for. Poland is also wanting very little to do with the nasty three, and now Holland and Argentina have right-wing governments. I'd love for you to have Olivia on to do a talk about how these governments work and how we could align ourselves with them politically. I, by the way, love the way the government is shaping up and is the only way forward for us. Cheers, Mike from Foxton. Robin writes in and says, Hi, Cam, one of your buddies, Miles, brought up the ethical and moral nature of Judith Collins as he praised her. I am genuinely interested in the way she voted on the abortion legislation. She voted exactly the same way as most of the Labour Party, all of the Green Party, that is, supporting the legislation and opposing all seven supplementary order papers, like the one Simon O'Connor put forward, where later-term babies born alive in an attempted abortion would be given medical care, and the one requesting fetal pain management for later-term babies. There may be ethical reasons why someone would vote this way, but try as I might, I've not been able to find anyone to discuss. Not trying to pick on Judith Collins, she just stuck out as she was the leader of the National Party, and most of her party voted in an entirely different way. Ruth writes in and says, I've just listened to Cam's buddies. Good value. How about dispersing some government departments to the far north in Gisborne? There's unemployment in those areas. Let some real Maori have these jobs, or at least let the wokes to see how many people are doing it hard. Quite different from the elite Maori in Wellington. We also need the pink and green hair brigade to find a real job, if indeed they're actually employed, and figure out what they are. Very un-PC to say this, but there you have it. From Facebook, Beth says, Good job, Cameron. And Lindley says, Love this. Worked out well straight after the coalition agreement announcement. Great buddies you have there, Cameron Slater. Wishing you a speedy recovery. Thanks, Lindley. Now to my Shane Jones interview. Thank you for Cam Slater's interview with Shane Jones. A breath of fresh air about moves to short-circuit some of the nonsense poured out by the crooked government media. That's from Tony. Now, our book giveaway entries and winner announcement. This is for Alex Epstein's Fossil Future book giveaway. Anonymous says, superb session, Cam. Yes, we are truly relieved more than we realize. Thanks to you too, sincerely. You have taught us as much about the corridors of voting. Anyway, Nigel was a fantastic opinionated buddy. Bring back oil. Anonymous writer says, oil, I live rurally, traveling 60 kilometers per day, so I have no interest in EVs at all. And Janet says, oil, because it's a prolific resource in New Zealand. Go the Naki. And someone called Cam writes in and says, hi, Cam. You know, I really like both diesel and electric. I just don't subscribe to either the for or against ideology. My big diesel easily tows the petrol-powered boat, but the EV is perfect for not spending extra income needlessly on fuel for the daily driving around. 
And Phil writes in and says, Hi, Cam, people do not understand the importance of oil. Our whole Western civilization is based on oil and the derivatives it produces. The woke lefties want to stop oil and our personal transport, but they would have to remove all clothing, housing, and food production, plus no steel, aluminium for cycles, trains, and buses. No communication devices, no flying overseas to discuss, no oil, no roads, I mean, footpaths, and I'm sure there are many, many more items in our lives from Phil. And can we have a drum roll now? And we've chosen Janet as our winner. Janet, someone will be in touch to grab your details, and you will have a book of Fossil Future by Alex Epstein on the way to you shortly. And that's the mailbag for this week. Committed to fair debate and honest information, the Reality Check has arrived. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Right, that's it for the crunch this week. George Wood certainly didn't hold back on why it is that Auckland Council is struggling financially. It all comes down to silly decisions by Len Brown. And I love gruff politicians who call things as they see it. And we had a little peek into the shadowy world of lobbyists and how they operate with my little chat with Fletcher Tabato. These conversations are important because they give you, the listener, an insight into my world, a world of dark intrigue, but also infinite possibilities. And that's what we do here at The Crunch. We're watching who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out. And if you're using the RCR app, and you really should be, you can easily get all our replays on the app as well as listen live. And a big thanks for the team that helps put together the show and make it all work. It's been a real pleasure having you all back this week. I'm loving all your feedback and really enjoying talking to so many people, sharing their thoughts on politics, life, and everything in between. I'm feeling a lot better after my little knock last week. So we've got a couple more shows before the Christmas break, and we're going to knock it out of the park for those as well. A big shout out to all of you, and thank you for listening and having faith in me as we continue to explore this beautiful game of politics. Don't forget email suggestions to inbox at realitycheck.radio for people for me to interview. And let's make this show the best political show in New Zealand. Stay tuned for a breakfast show repeat coming up with features including money talks with my buddy Farzan Irani and Perigo's perspective with the one and only Lindsay Perigo. Looking forward to having you join me again next Thursday at 4pm for The Crunch with Cam Slater. You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4pm for more with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio.